Hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you will check out the truth about South Africa uh, and um, be shocked, appalled, and hopefully get some hope out of the entire situation. All right, Mike, uh, who do we have up first? All right, well, up first is Luke, and he does want to talk about the What Pisses Me Off About the European Migrant Crisis video. He wrote in and said, I've had a few discussions over the past couple days about the topic the video focuses on. Both times, it was argued that the term migrant is invalid and that they are, in fact, refugees. Furthermore, they are refugees that were displaced by, quote, the West. This left me with two underlying questions. What were the migrant-slash-refugee patterns from the Middle East to America and the Commonwealth before such heavy anti-Al-Qaeda-slash-ISIS interventionalist policies? And second question is, are Western governments entirely to blame for the necessity of refugees from these places in the Middle East? So first question, just so everyone knows that I talked to Luke about this before the show, it's kind of hard to go over all this stuff without like charts and graphs. But we do have some data on Germany and the United States and some places that give it some ideas, the patterns. But it, that's a whole presentation in of itself, data wise. So. We do have some audio-only limitations, but uh, welcome to the show, Luke. Hey, guys. Good to be here. All right. How would you like to start off, Steph? Uh, you guys have the data, so if you want to talk about some of the uh, migrant patterns before the current surge, I think that would be helpful to put things in perspective. All right. Well, I got a whole bunch of data here on Germany, because Germany is one of the European countries that's most affected by the current crisis, and um, just... Just to be clear at the beginning, too, uh, definition for a migrant, a person or animal that migrates, also called a migrant worker, a person who moves from place to place to get to work, especially a farm laborer who harvests crops serially. So uh, refugee, a person who flees for refuse or safety, especially to a foreign country, as in a time of political upheaval war. I can say refugee is probably a bit more accurate there. And uh, asylee. An alien in or at a port of entry who is found unwilling or unable to return to his or her country or nationality in order to seek out the protection of that country because of persecution or well-founded fear of persecution. Persecution or the fear thereof must be based on the alien's race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. <sighs> okay, so now that we got our definition sorted out, migrant's probably not the best term there. Uh, that I can definitely agree on. For those of you who aren't on cocaine, you can play that back <laughs> a little slower. <laughs> All right. So let's go through some data about the uh, asylees or migrants or refugees coming into Europe. There has been an 86% increase in the amount of people claiming asylum in Europe between the first quarters of 2014 and 2015. 185,000 people sought asylum in the EU in the first quarter of 2015, according to data released by the EU Statistics Office. Kosovars, Syrians, and Afghans made up half of the asylum seekers as people fled unrest and conflict around the world. The highest number of first-time asylee applicants in the first quarter of 2015 were registered in Germany. They had 40% of total applicants in all of Europe for a total of 73,000 and some change. Then Hungary was next. They had 18%, 32,000 and change. Italy, 8%, 15,000 and change. France, 8%. 14,000 and change. Sweden, 6%, 11,000 and change. Uh, these five member states together accounted for 80% of all applicants. So those are the five European nations that they're most likely going to. Now, for Germany, which has been hit by this the hardest, 
Um, 218,000 asylum petitions were filed in the first half of 2015. So we talked about first quarter, now we're in the first half, and they have had over 200,000 asylum applications. Um, and this more than doubles the forecast for the year. They were expecting 300,000, and now their estimates for the total year are 800,000 refugees by the end of the year. So that's four times as many as 2014. Um, United, Germany's previous biggest annual intake was in 1992 when they took in 438,000 um, asylees or refugees. Um, they were refugees fleeing conflicts resulting from the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And uh, that year, the German parliament changed the constitution to impose stricter rules on asylum, and the number sank to a low 28,000 in 2008 before they started to climb again. So they had a huge high watermark in 1992, and that actually has some interesting impact on the economy. This isn't, you know, full conclusive, but just some data here. In 1990, um, and again, 1992 was the high watermark for asylees coming in, Germany spent 24.1% of GDP on welfare compared to in 2010 after this big bump when they were up to 30.6%. So they went from 24.1% in 1990 up to 30.6% of GDP in welfare spending. Is that tied to asylees and migrant populations? We'll get to that a bit later, but it does seem to be related. Um, also, in 1990, Germany's unemployment rate was 7.2%. And again, the big bump happened in 1992 uh, until recently. And then by 1997, the unemployment rate was up to 12.7%. So not too long after that big bump, you saw a huge crease in unemployment, which when you have lots of people coming into the country, job availability goes down for the general population. So, oh, all right. Germany in the center of the European Union is not the geographical front line for this drama. That burden falls on Greece and Italy, where the masses wash ashore. But Germany, along with Sweden, oddly enough, are the preferred destination for many asylum seekers, in part because it is comparatively liberal. These two countries alone processed 40% of the EU's asylum applications in 2014. Um, each asylum application by a Syrian in the UK over the past year, Germany received 27. So for every Syrian applying to the UK for asylum, Germany got 27 just to put it in perspective as to where these people are going. You know, they're not going to the UK primarily. Um, now, something else interesting that I thought would be worth mentioning. In 2013, Der Spiegel unearthed unsealed confidential British documents, quoting German Chancellor Kohl's comments on the Turks to Margaret Thatcher. Now, the Turks, we're not primarily talking about Turks right now, but there's some interesting stuff going on here that's kind of relevant to the overall conversation. So these are secret minutes of a meeting that were dated October 28th, 1982. The quote is, Germany had no problems with the Portuguese, the Italians, even the Southeast Asians, because these communities integrated well, wrote the minute keeper, Coles, who was minute keeper of the chancellor, German chancellor. But the Turks came from a very distinctive culture and did not integrate well. Germany had integrated some 11 million Germans from East European countries. This was um, way back when. 
Um, but they were European and therefore presented no problem. So they're talking about the importance of integration in these uh, secret minutes. Many German citizens began seeing immigrants as burdens on the social welfare system and competitors for jobs that were rightfully theirs. A 1992 survey found that 58% of Germans wanted to reduce the number of foreigners in the country. And here's a quote. The politicians in Bonn were overwhelmed, said, historian. said a historian. They were afraid of being overrun with Turks and wanted to get rid of them, but they didn't know how. Kohl, Chancellor Kohl, listed forced marriages and illegal employment by Turks as examples of, quote, a clash between two different cultures. One out of every two should leave, said the chancellor, and those who remain should be provided special schooling. Those who were to be integrated must learn German. Many German citizens began to see immigrants as burdens on the social welfare system and competitors for jobs that were rightfully theirs. A 1992 survey conducted... Oh, already, already ran through that. Um, all right, so how did German Chancellor Kohl try to address this? He threw money at the problem, essentially. He intended to capitalize on the social insurance payments with which Turkish workers had made and give it to them in a lump sum. So anything that they had paid into the system, they were just going to write checks, give it to them if they were to leave, um, according to the Thatcher logs here. In 1983, the center-right government approved a law providing limited assistance for foreigners to return to their country of origin. They hoped that a one-time payment of often uh, the average was 10,500 Deutschmarks and reimbursement of all their retirement insurance payments would entice the Turks to return home. So they were giving them everything that they paid into the system and over 10,000 Deutschmarks on top of it. But the program didn't work. Only about 100,000 Turks left. And at the same time, tens of thousands continued to come into Germany every year seeking asylum. So even as early as 1982, German Chancellor realized that this was an issue. So, um, and that's regarding the Turks. That's not specifically regarding, you know, people coming in from Syria and this stuff in 2015. All right. Now, some other interesting information. One German in eight would join an anti-Muslim march if a rapidly growing protest movement organized one in their hometowns. That's kind of scary to think about, that level of social disheval. In 2013, Germany spent 1.5 billion euros on allowances for asylum seekers, or about um, 12,500 euros per refugee per year, according to official statistics. That's quite a bit. If per capita cost stayed the same, Berlin might find itself spending as much as 10 billion euros in 2015 to feed, house, and teach German new arrivals. And that's before the adjusted estimates as well. <laughs> that's the estimate of 300,000, and now it's up to an estimate of 800,000. Given how well they've done with their estimates so far, maybe we'll pass a million. So um, that's just some background on Germany that's getting hit the hardest, their history of dealing with asylees or migrants or call you what they will and the problems that it has caused with social upheaval, unemployment, and uh, the point where they were willing to just treat checks to get people to leave. And even that didn't work because Germany's better than where they're coming from. So, that's uh, Yeah, that's some pretty illuminating data for sure. This is all called from the remnants of our the fall of Germany presentation that we put together. This, <laughs> all the stuff that we researched, it didn't make it into the final version. It's like, oh, look at all this stuff on immigration. Fantastic. So, yeah, just looking at those um, 
secret minutes from the 1982 meeting between German Chancellor Kohl and uh, Margaret Thatcher. It's pretty telling about the perception at the time. And now, you know, that's way before 1992 when they had the massive bump with over 400,000 people coming in. And now we're expecting 800,000 coming into Germany, and which is going to set, you know, the single year record. So we're uh, talking about a whole lot of people that are costing quite a bit of money. And one of the arguments is compared to the overall German economy, this isn't a lot of money. But this, I mean, it's a lot of money that would have went to other things or would go to other things. That debt that uh, German children wouldn't be sold into and uh, borrowed against. There's a whole lot of factors there. So there's some basic German stuff. Do you have any so- more... Uh, Germany, Germany must have left the gold standard around the same time then as America. I'm not sure about that, but do, do you have a, any idea? Oh, I have that somewhere. I forget the exact year, but you can look at the... It's not on. It's in the EU, of course. Let's just talk for two, two minutes about the Syrian civil war, because this is a lot of the... Um a lot of the source of the refugees. It's been a massive, massive displacement. So remember the Arab Spring... How it was going to bring free peace, freedom, democracy, and the market to the Middle East. Early spring of 2011, there were these, of course, nationwide protests against uh, Bashar al-Assad's government, who, in a fine old Middle Eastern tradition, responded with violent crackdowns, and it went from protest to an armed rebellion. Uh, there were months of military sieges. The opposition is, this is from Wikia, various groups that were formed during the course of the conflict, Primarily, the Free Syrian Army, first to take up arms in 2011, and the Islamic Front, formed in 2013. In 2013, Hezbollah, always people you want fighting with you, entered the war in support of the Syrian Army. In the east, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, um, a jihadist military group originating from Iraq, made rapid military gains in Syria, eventually ran into the other rebels, and uh, it's just fight over the Death Star that's died uh, by July 2014, ISIL um, controlled a third of Syria's territory and most of its oil and gas production, so it became the major opposition force. And um, the a UN report said the conflict is made overtly sectarian in nature between Alawite government forces, militias, and other Shia groups fighting largely against Sunni-dominated rebel groups. So it is a, um, a religious war in uh, many ways. The uh, conflict is called, has been called a proxy war due to foreign involvement. Uh, as of January 2015, the death toll had written, risen above 220,000. Estimates in April 2015 as high as 310,000. Um, Syrian government, ISIL, and other opposition forces have been accused of severe human rights violations. Many massacres, chemical weapons, uh, you name it, uh, the usual uh, nightmare that goes on. And more than 7.6 million Syrians have fled. It's uh, been a a mess. The conflict holds the record for the largest sum ever requested by UN agencies for a single humanitarian emergency. They requested $6.5 billion in December 2013. And of the money that they got, uh, they... um, uh, in January 2015, there were almost a, there were over 200,000 people who were besieged by government or opposition forces. Of course, the UN really wanted to get to them and get food to them with all this money that they had. Mike, out of an estimated 212,000, how many do you think they got food to? Oh, God. <laughs> Single digits? No, it's higher than that. Um... 212,000. 
So, yeah, so that would be 21,000 and change. Out of 212,000, they got 304. Oh, food man. for 300. They got food to 304 people, who I believe were in the midst of eating everyone else. 304 so, people. 304. So, yay, UN. Working just uh, beautiful. Um, so, the top 10 donors to Syria in terms of foreign aid or, or aid for humanitarian aid, the United States and the European Commission, Kuwait, the UK, Germany, Canada, Japan, Australia, Saudi Arabia, and Denmark. USAID and other government agencies in the U.S. delivered nearly $385 million of aid items to Syria in 2012 and 2013. U.S. is providing food aid, medical supplies, emergency and basic health care, shelter materials, clean water, hygiene, education and supplies and other release, uh, relief supplies. And um, so uh, it's um, happening with sort of that way that they're they're dumping a lot of uh, aid in in the area how much of it gets to people i don't uh, really know and um they of course are having you know all of the joyous desert illnesses are running rampant measles typhoid hepatitis dysentery tuberculosis diphtheria whooping cough uh, something called leishmaniasis, a disfiguring parasitic skin disease not to be confused with the leftist which is more of a bone marrow disease and uh, the refugees uh, are, um, as of March 2015, Al Jazeera estimates almost 11 million Syrians, or almost half the population, have been displaced. 3.8 million have been made refugees. One in th- of three Syrian refugees sought safety in Lebanon out of, uh, as of 2013. Others have fled to Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq. Turkey has accepted 1.7 million Syrian refugees. So uh, it's not just Europe. That is uh, occurring. And here's, uh, you're so quoting the 2013 fact. numbers, Steph. Here's, I got some stuff from 2014. I'll just read off real quick. Yeah, yeah. 2014, an estimated 866,000 asylum applications were recorded in 44 industrialized countries, which was a 45% increase over 2013. Now, we mentioned that 800,000 were going to be coming to Germany in 2015. So that's essentially the equivalent of the other 44 industrialized countries that were tracking this last year. To put it in perspective, um, the top destinations in 2014 were number one, Germany again, two, the United States, three, Turkey, four, Sweden, five, Italy. These five countries accounted for 60% of all applications. And the, uh, the order, as far as where people were coming from, Syrians one, Iraqis two, Afghans three, Serbians four, and Kosovars five. So the United States used to be the top destination for asylum seekers, but it was overtaken by Germany in 2013. And since then, Germany has remained in the top as the country receiving the most asylum-seeking applications, which I don't know if, uh, I don't exactly know how many people are just not filing the asylum-seeking application in the United States and just walking across the unguarded border to come in. I don't know that we could accurately say if uh, Germany is still beating the United States in people that are seeking asylum coming into the country, if we're not exactly tracking it in the U.S., which seems to be the case. So uh, that's something to think about as well. As far as Western governments and their involvement, so the main Syrian opposition body, well, called the Syrian Coalition, they get uh, political, logistic, and military support from the U.S., Britain, and France— Some Syrian rebels get training from the CIA basis in Qatar, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. The Syrian coalition also receives logistic and political support from Sunni states, most notably Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. 
All the three major supporting states have not contributed any troops for direct involvement in the war, though Turkey was involved in border incidents with the Syrian army. Reports are that Qatar had funded the Syrian rebellion by as much as $3 billion. Qatar was offering refugee packages of about $50,000 a year to defectors and family. Saudi Arabia has emerged as the main group to finance and arm the rebels. French television France 24 reported that the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, this is the ISIL with perhaps 3,000 foreign jihadists among its ranks, received private donations from the Gulf states. As of 2015, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey are openly backing the Army of Conquest, an umbrella rebel group that reportedly includes an Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Nusra Front and another Salafi coalition known as Ara Ash-Sham and Falak Ash-Sham, a coalition of Muslim Brotherhood-linked rebel groups. The major Syrian Kurdish opposition group, the PYD, was reported to get logistic and trading support from Iraqi Kurdistan. So basically, everyone's playing with the toy soldiers called real human beings in this uh, furnace of destruction known as Syria. And of course, there is um, uh, the um, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and all that as well. So um, it's not just what, what does Germany have to do with it? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. And uh, so the idea that Germany would take all of this, uh, the, these um, people fleeing, is um, uh, it's not causal, if that makes sense. Um, I'm sorry, what was the caller's name? Luke. Luke. So, uh, Luke, I'm uh, sorry to give you that fire, and fire cannon worth of, of, of information, but um, is it Western government's fault that there was a rebellion in Syria? Uh, no. No, uh, it's not. Uh, are Western governments uh, meddling? Yeah, some Western governments are meddling and some aren't. Um, a lot of the surrounding um, uh, Muslim governments uh, or, or Eastern governments, Middle Eastern governments are also meddling. And uh, this is what tends to happen. I mean, there are these proxy wars that have occurred throughout history, particularly 20th century and beyond, when the Russians go and fund all of the North Koreans or the Russians go and fund all of the North Vietnamese. Then there's this uh, belief in America. uh, And it goes back to something called the domino theory, which is that communism seemed to be in danger of taking over the entire world in the uh, 1940s and 1950s, particularly after the fall of uh, China. And uh, so there was this belief that it's just dominoes. Domino, they just keep going down. And at some point, you have to push back. So when your enemy is funding a particular group in a strategic location for yourself, the great temptation is to go and counterfund uh, someone. This happened, of course, with the Sandinistas and the rebels in Nicaragua under Reagan. Uh, this has happened all throughout the world that America goes in and starts selling arms. And you could say, oh, well, you see, it's because other people are selling arms and doesn't really matter. That's the perception of the way things go. But there's nothing unique about what the Western governments have done in terms of meddling in foreign conflicts. It is something that has happened since the days of the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, It is the great temptation of foreign policy that you can go in there and just start pushing uh, money, militia, and machine guns around and suddenly magically get what you want. Uh, it doesn't uh, It doesn't work. And it was entirely uh, predictable. Of course, um, uh, Iraq and Iran in particular have been fighting for many years, many, many decades, in fact, and throughout history even longer than that. And as soon as you knocked out um, Iraq, then Iran was going to invade and try and take it over. And um, as soon as you destabilize any country uh, in in the Middle East, which is a giant hotspot of dictatorships, as soon as you 
um, disrupt any government or any government gets disrupted in the Middle East, um, generally there's a power vacuum which even crazier people rush to fill. And um, this has been the case in the Middle East for hundreds of years. It's not about to change tomorrow. But um, what the average German taxpayer has to do with this is nothing. And why should the average German taxpayer um, have their culture and their country diluted and their tax bills go up and create multi-generational future problems uh, remains uh, a case that I find very hard to make. I mean, if it's funny because Europe gets nagged a lot for this kind of stuff, as does America and Canada and Australia. You know, all of the Commonwealth countries and so on get uh, nagged and the um, sort of white Western European powers get nagged for all of this stuff. Um, Japan basically doesn't let any Muslims in. And you can, in fact, go to jail in Japan for even converting to Islam. And I've never seen a single article screaming at the Japanese about how racist and xenophobic they are. Um, this is, you know, if, if Europeans have concerns about their history and their heritage and their culture and their countries, and they wish to push back against these waves of extremely foreign immigrants, I mean, they, they are a very, very foreign group of people. It's not like people from Northern Ireland are going into Southern Ireland or anything. I mean, these are very, very, you know, oppositional religions, oppositional cultures, and uh, widely divergent to histories. Uh, you know, the Middle East has not gone through the Enlightenment, and uh, that's not a particularly good mix. People who don't speak the language, and so many of them that integration is going to become impossible. We're looking at literally centuries of problems that people are going to be uh, facing uh, coming uh, ahead down the road. Uh, you're looking at increased possibilities of terrorism, and you're looking, of course, at uh, highly activist voting blocks that uh, have been openly speaking, as as uh, people in the Middle East have been openly speaking about. Well, we just we go to Europe, we outbreed the whites, uh, and then we take them over through democracy. This is uh, has, anyway, this is not, of course, on the mind of every Syrian person. Far from it. But uh, there's enough there that people have legitimate concerns. And uh, the fact that this is racist and xenophobic and Nazi just screamed at anyone who wants to put up a barrier against these highly traumatized, uh, very, very foreign uh, groups of people who are coming into their territory and which has a direct impact on their culture and their taxes uh, and their future and and their children's future and so on. The, The fact that there's not even a possibility that the Europeans would have a voice about this without just getting screamed down uh, is pitiful. And the Europeans need to just stop being cowed down by all of this political correctness uh, because there are legitimate concerns. I mean, can you imagine if if uh, millions of uh, Europeans were, were pouring into Saudi Arabia? Can you imagine what they would do in Saudi Arabia? I mean, it would be <laughs> quite different than what the Europeans are doing. And uh, it's uh, and they, they wouldn't care. I mean, call us racist. Okay, we don't want the Christians here. We don't want the Europeans here. This is Saudi Arabia. This is our country our culture, our history. And um, the idea that every every culture is allowed pride and national self-determination except for white countries and European countries and Commonwealth countries uh, is just such a ridiculous double standard that nobody can take it seriously. Yeah, the, the amount of tolerance that, uh, that, well, you know, the West has is is remarkable. Like, you know what I mean? I, it's, I can't believe that, that the label... Um, it is on, well, us, like I'm from Canada as well, stuff, but, uh, yeah, it's just crazy how, how the label gets put on us as, as, you know, intolerant and, and, and xenophobic and, and whatnot. Well, in the meantime, exactly what you said, like, I could not imagine 
any sort of tolerance at all for for you know a mass amount of people going into these countries right and the last thing i mentioned as well this is um the, the data is not always perfect but it is worth considering that to have a modern civilization you need a population with a high iq not everybody has to be geniuses but you've got to be around a hundred in on average uh, for people to have uh, a, a civilization. A civilization works when people are willing to defer immediate gratification for the sake of the common good and the future good. And you simply cannot have a modern civilization with low IQ populations. Average IQ in Sweden, 99. Germany, 99. United States, 98. Um, Syria, 83. Afghanistan, 84. Yeah, Iraq, 87. South Africa, 77. And again, are these numbers perfect? Of course, they're not perfect. You can't, but but this is a standard deviation difference. And you simply, I mean, you've got to think of of an advanced civilization as like a post, or let's say, a graduate school. It's at least graduate school in in the world because that's how rare it is to have an advanced civilization based on common law. And uh, you know, the capacity to tolerate disagreement without violence is foundational to any civilization. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You know, that old quote, I think mistakenly attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with everything you say, but would defend to the death your right to say it. The capacity to have disagreements without violence requires more intelligence. And you have to look at modern civilizations, wherever they are, but I'm just going to focus on the West here since that's what's in question. Modern Western civilizations have challenges and difficulties enough. And the idea that you can run a graduate level educational um, class or, or degree granting sequence that, that you can have a, a graduate level course and let in people with an IQ of 83, it, it, you can't do it. You simply cannot do it. And that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be confused. Uh, they'll get resentful. They'll get aggressive. And of course, what's going to happen is these people, uh, if they come in with an average IQ of 83, which is, um, well, half of them are, are lower than that. That's the average. What's going to happen is they're going to come into an IQ 100 society with an IQ of 83. They are going to fail. They are not going to succeed in these countries. And then what's going to happen is everyone's going to scream bigotry and racism at all the people of higher IQs. And why, why would anybody want that? I mean, you, you can't even get into, when I was going to go to university, you know, you needed 80 or 85. People with an IQ of 83, I don't even think they can finish high school. And then they want to get into the graduate level programs of Western civilization. It's not going to work. And it may, it may sound a bit crass, but it's, it's the intelligence factor mixed with the highly religious, you know, a culture where where these ideas are let you know are let to just run and 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 they, they, it's just chased constantly um yeah that's that's all i wanted to say is just that how the iq and the religion mixed together is, is is the dangerous part and and the fact that there's so little knowledge of the iq stuff and it's so steadfastly pushed back against by people like if I, it gives groups the capacity to blame others 
for their dysfunction and for their failures, right? So if I went to go to the University of Cairo, uh, and and I don't speak Arabic, of course, right? I, I wanted to go to the University of Cairo, and I wanted to get into postgraduate physics in Arabic. I mean, how well would I do? I would do, I would, I, there's no words to describe how badly I would do in that situation. Now, but nobody would nobody would be screaming that the people in Egypt were racist against me because they would recognize that I'm going far beyond my current capacities in a language I don't understand, in a culture I've never experienced directly before. And so they'd say, well, look, you, you're in the wrong place. You can't succeed in this place. But you have, of course, an entire world out there that anytime non-Westerners fail in a Western society, Everybody screams racism, and what that means is that the onus is then not on the other people to just damn well do better, because they can just they can just join in the chorus of screaming racism and bigotry and and white privilege and all this sort of leftist claptrap. They can scream this at all the white people, which means that nobody has to look inward. Like if I go and fail in Cairo, I'm going to come back with my tail between my legs, and I'm going to say, well, that was kind of a stupid overreach for me, wasn't it? Or what? Or I can work like hell, night and day, to try and succeed. And so, you know, drop, drop me down in the middle of Japan without being able to speak Japanese. How well am I going to do? And, and if I don't do well, do I then get to scream that Japanese are anti-white and racist and have everyone rush to my aid and, and get angry at the Japanese and say, you poor, you poor white person, you're, you're being subjected to so much Japanese bigotry. It's not your fault. It's those bastard Japanese. We hate them. Let's go start shooting their policemen. I mean, why on earth would the Japanese want to bring any of that into their country, which is why they don't let it come? Yes. And, and of course, like just the normal caveats of, of uh, you know, I've met, I've met and worked with some vastly intelligent, you know, Middle Eastern people, uh, you know, very professional, very hardworking, of course. Um, I, obviously, just generalities and, and so forth. But um but yeah, I just wanted to add that. I mean, do you know, do you know, f- over five thousand people applied to be asylum uh, asylum recipients in in Japan in twenty fourteen. Um, do you know how many j- <laughs> the Japanese government accepted out of five thousand applicants? Uh, uh, lucky number seven. Eleven. Oh, close, close, close Luke. <laughs> eleven. They accepted eleven asylum seekers. Goodness. Because they believe that Japan is for the Japanese. And look, I'm not I'm not saying whether all this is right or wrong. I'm just, you know, this is a perspective that people need to to chew on. That if you're not angry at Japan for keeping people from the Middle East out of their country and for taking almost no asylum seekers, if there aren't protests and screaming at, at the Japanese bigotry and xenophobia and racism, then shut up about Europe. Like I just I don't care. If you're not out there screaming at Japan, don't scream at Europe. And nobody is screaming at Japan. So it's got nothing to do with principle. It's just that Europeans, you know, God help them, (laughs) they have this big giant guilt button. And you show them pictures of drowned two-year-old kids and they're like, open, oh, you have to, you know. And then there's all this guilt about, oh, you know, well, the, the, the governments did this, that, or the other. It's like governments have been screwing up other countries since the dawn of time. And... It is not causal that there is foreign intervention in Syria as to why Syria has blown up. And it's also not causal that Syrians are running rather than staying and fighting. 
And, uh, you know, when there was a civil war in America, you know, half the population didn't just hightail it to Argentina. You know, when there was a, a rebellion against the British rule, half of the American population didn't just go to Canada. I guess that was Vietnam or whatever, but that was a different story because they didn't really believe in that war. When there was uh, the, the glorious revolution in, uh, in England, the population didn't all just vanish to Finland. Uh, there, 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 and, you know, this is, just, this is just history. This is just the reality of history. And um, when there was... Uh, when Hitler rose in, in the center of Europe uh, throughout the 1930s and started rattling his saber, uh, the European population didn't run off to Kuwait. Uh, they stayed and they fought, right or wrong. I'm just, I'm just saying that that's, that's the difference, and um, it's, it's kind of hard to miss. And say, oh well, you know that they, they were bombed, right? And they were bombed. Yeah, okay, and they were bombed. And um, Japan was bombed. You know, Japan took, took quite a lot of firepower in the Second World War. Tokyo uh, had was built almost entirely of wood, and they had firestorm bombings throughout 1944 and 1945. And one night alone, over 100,000 people were killed. Dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan. And the entire population of Japan didn't set out in boats to, to China. They stayed and they rebuilt. And uh, Germany was bombed throughout uh, basically 1941 plus, that they were bombed uh, enormously, massively. Dresden, where my grandmother was, was killed, had another one of these firebombs that killed tens and tens of thousands of people. The entire country of Germany uh, and its infrastructure, its buildings, its roads, was leveled, destroyed. And uh, Germany, they didn't all run off to Russia. I guess they probably didn't want to, but they didn't, they didn't all run off to England. They stayed and they rebuilt. And England, of course, was bombed from the beginning of the Battle of Britain uh, through. Uh, they were dropping these V-2 rockets uh, all the way, I guess, up until the D-Day invasion pushed their range too far back. And even then, they were still raining a few down. And these bombs uh, occurred, uh, bombings occurred regularly. And all of England didn't uh, get on boats and, and head off to Ireland, which was neutral in the Second World War, or head off to America or take off to any of the... They could have all, you know, gone to India. <laughs> it was still a colony in the Second World War. They stayed and they, uh, they fought. And Japan was rebuilt and, and England was rebuilt and Germany was rebuilt and came out, you could argue, given how god-awful things were economically and politically in many places before the Second World War, they stayed, they fought, they rebuilt, and they came out of the Second World War a better country than before. Better countries than before. And... Um, this uh, approach that the Syrians are taking, which is uh, there are, you know, they, they tried to rebel against an existing government and things kind of went haywire and they're all just running. And again, I can understand it. I, I really, I can understand it. I can understand it. But it's not the Western way. It's not the Western way. And um, the fact that they've been bombed, the fact that there's political instability, well, welcome to human history, man. But if you run and don't stay and make your country a better place, I think that the result is um, going to be pretty catastrophic. I mean, my, my ancestors um, were taken over by the Romans. Thank God, because my ancestors were completely retarded. And uh, the fact that the Romans came north and, and produced better things for society, yay, yay Italians, good job, because, you know, we were all just 
painting ourselves blue and, uh, you know, eating raw sheep leg. I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible, ridiculously backward and dumbass society uh, that was going on uh, in England uh, back before the Romans. The Romans came along and built some damn roads and built Hadrian's Wall because nobody wants to go into Scotland. <laughs> they can avoid it and keep the Scots back by any price, right? And, um, uh, you know, that's what happens. There's a tidal wave of power that goes back and forth in society and throughout history and throughout the world. And you cannot achieve a free society without fighting hard for it. I mean, I'm fighting a war of words, which is more than most uh, of my uh, <laughs> my fellow Europeans are doing. I'm fighting a war of words, which has uh, challenges uh, in and of itself at times. But um, this idea that, uh, well, you know, there's this political instability, there's this war, uh, and uh, we have absolutely no choice but to run to, um, to Europe or, or to Turkey or whatever, well, you know, the, uh, the, the French, uh, after the fall of, of France in May of 1940, the, um, the French were occupied by the Nazis. Not a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, did they all flee to England? Well, you know, some of the, uh, you know, in the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, some of the French army, and rightly so, did flee to England so that they could rearm, go back and fight. And um, those who stayed behind, they fought a war of attrition against the Nazis. And that was horrible. And that was hard. And um, that was a brutal fight. I don't know. I mean, I, I wish people could learn through reason and through evidence and uh, all that. But uh, a lot of times they don't. But um, I don't know. Maybe I just come from a... Yeah, maybe I just come from a more martial background or whatever. But... Uh, it is, um, you know, I, I don't see what what good you're going to get out of just just running. I mean, you just abandoned your homeland to the crazy people. I mean, why? Yeah, that's that's a good point for sure. It was funny. It was funny you mentioned the uh, the aspect of um, staying and fighting. It was I was planning on moving for a long time from Ontario. And uh, just just because of well, I'm sure people in California and whatnot can can attest, but just it seemed like almost an insurmountable amount of taxes, red tape, blah blah blah. You know, like the whole socialist regime is just getting to me. I see they I see they're adding uh, I see they're adding a provincial pen, pension plan, which is just great yeah. on top of the uh, federal. So that's just super duper. And this is uh, this is politics. Stephen Harper was a big fan of Ayn Rand, apparently in college, and really wanted to shrink the size and power of the state. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. <laughs> nice try. He's our he's our John Galt. He's our Rand Paul. And uh, this is what uh, this is what happens. Yeah. Now, sorry, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but um, uh, Stoyan, um, you wanted to because Stoyan, you know, I mean, Mike is the only person who's stuck within four feet of the womb that dropped him. <laughs> but uh, I've been to a bunch of places, of course, uh, Stoyan. Um, uh, has uh, been to a bunch of places. Uh, what are your thoughts, Stan? Yeah, most people don't know, but uh, actually the majority of the people working for the show are migrants. Steph moved from England to Canada, and I myself moved from uh, Eastern Europe to uh, the UK. But so, not by choice, just to put that in. Uh, I was kind of dragged over here against my will when I was 11, but uh, Stoyan was more a chosen situation. But sorry, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, for me it was chosen, and at a much later later age too. And um, one of the things that people don't understand is that the degree to which people 
bring their own coaches and they don't accept they don't accept the host country's culture. And I actually had arguments. I wasn't the only Bulgarian, obviously, who migrated to uh, the UK. And I had lots of friends, even classmates, who did uh, the same around the same time. And we had lots of arguments about how do you approach English culture? Because believe it or not, just because we're all white, we don't always share the same culture. There are differences, and it was a challenge for some of my friends and some classmates to integrate into the country. Some of them were refusing to even learn English properly because Bulgarian to them was much better. And these are people who are intending to live here for a very long time. And uh, one of the reasons why I did uh, emigrate from Bulgaria was I did not like the situation back there. And you could say, all right, these people don't like the situation in, in their host country, so they did the same. How is that different? The difference is, is that when I came here, I did not intend to bring Bulgaria with me. In other words, I fully, I decided to fully integrate into the, the English culture. No, no holds barred. No, no holding that's, back. Yeah, that's very powerful. And the reason why I did it is because if I'm going to live amongst these people and they're going to be accepting me into their society, they're used to a standard which is different. And it is perfectly justified for them to, to ask me to learn English, for example, or to ask me to um, get accustomed to some of their uh, more unique, like this is, this is, I, I won't go into details because they're not very relevant, but yeah, there are unique things about the English culture and I had to adjust to those. Took me a while, took me a while. But the fact is that a lot of other Bulgarians refused to do that. And they didn't do it because they couldn't. This is, this is why I had these arguments with people. They did it because they didn't want to. Uh, in other words, sorry, they didn't do it because they didn't want to. And, uh, I think it's, it was a betrayal to them or something. Is that, yeah, is that it was, their mindset? you're betraying, you're betraying the beautiful Bulgarian slash Eastern European culture. And all these foreigners do not deserve that. They're not worthy of you doing that. Why should you abandon your language? Why should you abandon your culture? Why should you abandon your cuisine even? And that was the mentality. I was by far the, the exception. I was in fact the only one who was arguing the position that you, if you're intending to permanently move to a different country, you should fully adopt all the customs and even the language. And this is, sadly, this is the mentality of pretty much, I, I would say, 99% of immigrants. And it is the mentality of maybe 90 to 99% of immigrants I have ever met. And I've met quite a few, especially in university. So I, I fully understand what Steph is talking about because I've lived through it. I've experienced it. And yes, this is going, especially, mind you, but Bulgaria is not that different in terms of culture, if you compare it to Syria, like different from the UK culture. So it, it didn't, it wasn't that difficult to integrate. But if you combine a refusal to integrate with a difficulty to integrate, then it becomes pretty much impossible. Then you're looking, which is what's happened in the UK, you're looking at the second generation being in, able to integrate better. And even then, I have met lots of uh, children of, let's say, Indian immigrants, second generation, 
there are lots of them here in the UK, and they still bring that Indian culture. You can still immediately tell tell from their mannerisms, from their customs, even from the clothes they wear, that they are not Anglo-Saxons. You don't even have to look at the color of their skin. So this this integration issue is a huge deal. So it's a huge deal. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, do you so do you think uh, following that that thought um, that the Little Italy's and and the Chinatowns is that a failure to integrate or is that just a um, is that just a you know want to be with your tribe kind of thing or is it a little bit of both? I think it's a combination of the two. It's both difficult. Low IQ people integration is difficult. Like I understand, I have my language abilities were very good in comparison to a lot of people, so it was easy for me to learn English. For others, it was more of a challenge, but at the same time, for them, it was also a combination of a refusal to do it as well. So it's I would say it's a little bit of both, but given how the tendency for humans is to segregate along tribal and ethnic lines. I would say that is 80, 80% inability. Oh, sorry, 80% uh, refusal and 20% inability. There's a big difference between showing up wanting to go to school, educate yourself, and in a field that involves significant intelligence versus showing up with a cardboard sign saying hungry as well. Right. And the other issue with immigration in a status society is that you're not allowed to discriminate. Yes. And, you know, after that volatile beginning, let me, let me clarify what I'm, what I'm going to say. So let's say that people, a lot of people from Syria, in, in a free society, and let's just forget about borders for the moment and just, you know, talk about the tribe of, of Germans or whatever. Let's say that a bunch of Syrians want to go into Germany and Germans don't like them. Well, for whatever, whatever, whatever reason, for whatever reason, right? Maybe some of those reasons are legitimate, uh, maybe some of those reasons are not. So if a bunch of Syrians want to move to Germany and Germans don't like them, what's going to happen? Germans aren't going to hire them. Germans aren't going to want to rent apartments to them. Germans aren't going to want to serve them in restaurants. I mean, because they will have the right of free association and forced association is a violation of freedom of association. There so they can't... The one-way one way track to, uh, to social funding, of course. I'm sorry. It was yeah. That's just a one-way track to, to social funding. It's the same. I don't know what that is. Social funding. What is that? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, it's just a one-way track to welfare. In the current situation, you mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So so if you don't want Syrians living around you, and this is nothing to do with Germans. If a whole bunch of Germans want to move to Syria and the Syrians don't like them, then the Syrians can choose not to sell food to them, they can serve not to serve gas to them, they can choose not to hire them, they can, the banks can choose not to lend to them or whatever, in which case um, the Germans will go home, <laughs> right? The Germans will go home from Syria and the Jordanians will go home from Scotland and the Scottish people will go for home from Saudi Arabia because they just, they won't get invited to any parties, right? I mean, we're social animals. And so if you can't reject people, if you can't discriminate against people, then you are simply provoking intense conflict in the long run. Because the problem is that the Germans um, can't say no to the Syrians because the German government is going to take money from the Germans and give it to the Syrians, even if the Germans wouldn't do that normally. And if a German doesn't want to hire a Syrian, that German could then go to jail 
for some sort of discriminatory practice. And if some German landlord doesn't want to rent to a bunch of Syrians, then the Syrians can bring a lawsuit against him. And this has happened many, many times throughout the West. And that person can then uh, be forced to go to jail. And if you don't want Syrians in your restaurant, then suddenly you're some horrible racist segregationist xenophobe or whatever. And the fact that people are not allowed to reject, that there's forced association is one of the huge problems. And the reason that I think that's important is that, uh, you know, people prefer green to whatever their own skin color or their own culture happens to be. If people don't want to associate with a particular group, it's because generally they do not find it in their economic interest to do so. In other words, they will, if a bunch of Germans go to Syria and those Germans are like, oh, let me give you a better example. <laughs> resonate with you because you've probably seen this. Let's say that a bunch, a bunch of youthful, exuberant, and energetic British soccer fans <laughs> wish to go to a small town in Italy to watch a soccer game. Yeah. Um, Stoyan, would you like to give us the perspective of the people in Italy when they see this uh, potential occurring? Oh, they would want them out as soon as possible because they would get drunk, they would start breaking things and getting into fights with people. They would want them out immediately. They, would them, they don't even want them to come, right? And in fact, airlines get to do this, right? So a bunch of soccer fans want to get together and rent a plane uh, or a boat to go to Calais to watch some game, and they say no. <laughs> like Aerosmith in the 1980s wants to check into a hotel room. The hotel says no. <laughs> Thank you very much because you guys regularly throwing cathode ray tube TVs through the window. And so where it's simply not in people's economic interest, you know, okay, well, we'll you know, the, the little town in Italy with the British hooligans coming over, they say, okay, well, you know, they'll spend some money on lager and they'll, they'll yell at us for not having enough fish and chips uh, and, and we'll make some money, but the damage and destruction that they're going to cause is not worth it. And so we don't want them uh, to come. And so it's a great way of figuring out the economic value of uh, immigration. And in a free society, if, um, let's say, a bunch of um, Japanese engineers really wants to move to Silicon Valley, I think that people will be paving the way for them to come because Japanese um, engineers are quite uh, high in demand just to take one particular group and skill set. So that's not a problem because that's a net economic positive. But, uh, you know, does, uh, I don't know, Who's a group that's really bad? I'm thinking Scots Ballet. I don't know. Whatever, right? If, if you know, 300 Scots people want to come down and, and uh, get ballet scholarships, well, they're going to have to go through. They're going to have to jump, I guess, literally almost through those hoops. And so if you can't reject people, if you can't ostracize people, if you can't refuse to associate with people, then immigration doesn't work because you don't know whether it's going to be of value to the host people. And so that is one of the huge problems. And on the left, of course, what they're doing is trying to break down all those barriers to, uh, to ostracism. And uh, that is, you know, boy, talk about burying a conflict until it simply is going to explode uh, in your face. That's just not the way to do it. I mean, you know, if people are prejudiced, of course, try and teach them uh, about how bad their prejudice is and teach them about how bad their bigotry or racism may be. But the best way, of course, if there's some bigoted businessman uh, around who doesn't want to hire Asian um, engineers, okay, 
So he's going to limit his pool of available applicants, other people who are going to hire Asian engineers or African engineers or whoever is uh, the best in in the gene pool or the best in the the hiring pool. If that person doesn't want to hire a particular group, they're limiting their potential candidates, which means other companies are going to get, in general, better employees and are going to outcompete them in the marketplace and the bigot goes out of business. Um, But people don't want to, with ostracism, people don't want to have it revealed just what an economic negative mass immigration can be. Uh, and so it comes out of this kind of incoherent rage and it comes out in this attacking people and all that. But that's because, you know, if you force people to get married, you're going to get a lot more domestic abuse. Do you think, do you think the fact that, um, do you think the fact that the left in, in, tries to enforce these, or is enforcing these policies, I should say, do you think that's almost like a, a projection to some personal racist in their own, in their own mind? You know what I mean? Like they, it, it just seems it's like we have to force people to, to do this. And meanwhile, it's just like, well, I don't need this law to be, to, to be, you know, uh, accepting of, of a hardworking person from another culture. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, Left, it's, yeah, it's leftists, leftists can't handle failure. Leftists can't process failure. And it is incredibly racist to, to say, let's say to blacks uh, in America, to say you need the power of the state to get a job. That is incredibly uh, racist. And, um, and until that's dealt with, it's like, oh, let blacks compete, let Asians compete, let whites compete, let, let's just have a free market. And then the, their fear, of course, is that blacks are going to fail terribly, right? And so, to, and, and so you have to have a belief that blacks are going to fail terribly in order to believe that affirmative action is necessary. And so I think that it's the people on the left who are... Um, desperately terrified and, and believe that blacks are fundamentally incompetent because otherwise, uh, why would they be in, you know, for all of these uh, uh, programs to sort of transfer all these resources and opportunities to blacks if they genuinely believe the blacks can compete? Fantastic. Then uh, I'll say, well, the blacks are poor. It's like, okay, so poor. I, was, I grew up poor, so I could compete more with other people because I had lower standard of living. But uh, Stein, you wanted to mention something about um, uh, your experience with ostracism in the UK? Oh yeah, there is uh, there is this stereotype which may be true, and I'll talk more about it uh, later. But British people are generally pretty hostile to immigrants from Eastern Europe for various reasons, which I won't get into. But I would say justified. And so, as a person from Eastern Europe myself, can you guess that if I've ever experienced any hostile treatment? You mean outside of? Free domain radio? <laughs> in the UK, living, living. Oh, I, I absolutely guarantee. I mean, the British are, you know, they're masters of the slightly widened nostril and the, oh my God, I just stepped on something that's been dead in the woods for a week kind of expression, uh, almost like a, that French waiter peeing on you from no, a great height. I haven't experienced even that. I oh, is that too subtle? <laughs> I, I do notice these. I do notice these kinds of reactions, but. I haven't experienced any hostile treatment. Part of the reason why I haven't experienced any hostile treatment is because I have not ever expected people to respect my culture. And this is something that is quite obvious when I was moving around Bulgarian circles in the UK, is Bulgarians would introduce themselves as Bulgarians almost immediately. Or one minute into the conversation, they would say, you know, I think this, but I'm Bulgarian. 
So they will immediately insert some anchor to the culture and expect people to treat them differently because they come from a different culture. Yeah. I have never expected that from people and I have never received hostile treatment because I come from Eastern Europe. Huh. And this is almost universal. I have seen it everywhere. It it just it is random drop ins into conversations, which is oh you know I'm I'm from so and this in this country, and therefore X. This usually is mentioned within a split second, and immediately changes the nature of the conversation. <laughs> now it becomes like a, like like a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a vegan, yeah. but. Sorry. So now, what you what what you're saying about uh, eating meat? Yeah, and this is this is something that people get really upset about uh, the natives, and rightly so. Why should why should they respect your culture? Have you earned it? You haven't earned it. You grew up in that culture. Just because you come from a different culture doesn't give you any right to a different treatment. Yeah, this is something that is almost universal and I have seen it everywhere. I have seen it with immigrants from Asia. I have seen it with immigrants from Eastern Europe. It is everywhere. It is, you respect me for my culture. Else, things are going to get difficult between us. And then they wonder why people are walking on edge. And in some cases, with some of the less quote-unquote tolerant people, it turns into hostility. And of course it would. Of course it would. I perfectly understand that. And I, I read articles about how uh, English people are so xenophobic and they hate Eastern Europeans and I, I just laugh at them. Right. That's, that's what I wanted to mention because I have, a, I have a somewhat unique experience with discrimination. Something else I wanted to mention as well is that um, I was thinking today about Mexico. Now, Mexico has been next to the United States pretty much since the beginning. So a couple of hundred years. It's been right next to America. Now, how much of America's founding principles have made their way across to Mexico in a couple of years of pretty tight proximity? I'm going to go with not a whole lot. They like their movies with subtitles. They like some of the yeah. entertainment-ish stuff, as do many uh, places. They like the Western entertainment stuff. But culturally, not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, they um, they seem to like Al Pacino movies a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to my little friend! I mean, they, they just love those uh, Al Pacino movies where there's massive amounts of of gunfire. What's that? What is that? Hello, welcome to my my little friend movie. Scarface. Scarface. They love Scarface, uh, which is one of the more horrifying movie experiences I've ever had in my life. But anyway, um, so Mexican the Mexicans have lived right next to America for hundreds of years, and have incorporated few, if any, of the political ideas that founded America. And I know they've been sort of dissolving and disintegrating within America as well, but right next door, right next door for hundreds of years, and the culture has not transferred, even though, of course, in many ways, 
the American political system is vastly superior to the, um, the Mexican political system. Just hasn't transferred. And that's how incredibly lengthy and sustaining culture is. I mean, look at the Jews. It's very similar cultures in many ways for 5,000 years, even without a, a country for almost all of that time. And so if you look at Mexico that has lived right next to the U.S. for hundreds of years and has incorporated almost none of its beneficial aspects, well, then when a quarter of Mexicans popula- Mexico's population moves to the U.S., are they going to adopt the U.S.'s political ways? They are not. If it didn't happen with Mexico right next door, it's not going to happen when a quarter of the Mexican population moves to the U.S. They're going to turn those areas into Mexico Because even Mexico, right next to America, didn't get turned anywhere close to America, but remained steadfastly Mexican. So that's sort of the the one point. And the last rant that I want to make is, and this is a purely personal rant, and it has no philosophical meaning. It's just a a mere venting. Oh, my God. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. To be coming from the European tradition, the British tradition, whatever, Anglo-Saxon tradition. And to have the entire world scream at you your whole life how nasty and evil your whole culture is, how intolerant and homophobic and racist and sexist, and oh yeah, you were colonial powers. You raped the planet. And you're horrible human beings in general. And you stole all of your culture's achievements from the Egyptians and uh, other people from the Middle East who haven't done a whole lot in the last 700 years. But anyway, that's a topic for another time. You people, you Europeans, who you just, you're horrible. You're conquerors. You raped the new world. You destroyed the natives. You destroyed the Incans. You destroyed the Mayans. You destroyed the Native Americans. You had the Crusades and you, you just horrible human beings conquered the planet and raped and murdered and killed and blah, right? That is what it's like being on the receiving end of literally a troll-filled canon of acidic hatred. And if you're not from the European tradition, and in particular, if you're not a white male from the European tradition, you don't know what it's like to just see this over and over the seething tsunami of hatred towards everything that has birthed you. And then, and then, for people in trouble to say, shit, we better get to Europe. That's the best place ever. Mmm. Mmm. It's like having some, I don't know, creepy third cousin who just calls you a complete asshole and undermines everyone against you and lets the air out of your tires and just farts in your general direction and takes a slow pee in your gazpacho soup and just thinks you're the worst guy ever, didn't you kill my brother? (laughs) And just thinks you're a complete douchebag, asshole, clown-faced jerkazoid. And then he's like, he calls you in the middle of the night and says, hey man, I'm stuck downtown, I need 20 bucks. Can you you just just drive it down to me, okay? Hey man, I'm really in trouble, I gotta come and live in your house forever. (laughs) I'm like, if I was that person, I'd be like, hey, no, I'm such a jerk, I don't want to inflict my ultimate jerkishness on you. So, you know, to all the people who've just been spewing and vile disgorging up, they let disgorge up hatred 
into the waiting self-sadistic beaks of the Europeans like a mother bird vomiting up some old worms. To all of the people who've said, oh man, Europe, you are horrible, colonialist, rapist, sexist, homophobic, white power supremacist, blah, 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 Nazis. Oh, well, that's great. Now you're in trouble. You want to come in? How about no? How about you reap what you sow? How about nobody praised you? Everybody thought you were an asshole. So get the hell out of my fridge. That was the end of that rant. Well, thank you for that. I was secretly hoping for a white shame rant during the call. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's been an hour, 20 minutes. So I want to try and let the other callers get on. Um, just while I have you on the phone, Steph, I, I don't even know if you're covering any of the Canadian election. I know it's pretty well a one party system, but do you have any, do you have any quips from that at all? Or, um, we're, this, we're doing a this, bit on, yeah, we're working on a bit on Canada. So I'll, uh, I'll wait till that comes out. I haven't okay, completely cool. forgotten the sod beneath my feet. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to do something on Canada coming up. Cool, man. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I always enjoy uh, talking to you. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dwayne. All right. Thank you, Luke. always love the current events questions fresh off the presses. So, all right. Well, up next is Francois, and Francois says, As a white male South African, I experience a completely different South Africa than the caller from the Surviving the Horrific Violence in South Africa show. That's, uh, for people that remember, that was Peter who called into the show, who was having a really rough time in South Africa. And actually, because of the show, we uh, a listener ended up setting him up with an interview for a job in China, and he's actually now in China teaching English. So he's out of that bad situation. So, And uh, some listeners contributed some funds to help pay for his plane fare and all that stuff. So really cool moment for the community with that going on. Oddly enough, I just sent him our video we just did about South Africa, which was inspired by him, and it's currently blocked in China by their uh, their giant <laughs> uh, censorship filter, so we can't even watch the video that was inspired by him as of yet. So. Wait. All we do is a video that gets over 300,000 views on the fall of China, and suddenly China no likey? I don't understand. <laughs> I think we've abandoned China for a while, but uh, I guess I'll take that Victory! as a of honor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. If you're not banned in China, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> uh, Francois continues and says, I see only opportunities and hope to such a degree that I'm investing in the country and would recommend anyone else do the same. To what extent is it necessary to consider the historical and current context when understanding and making an evaluation of a current situation? For example, the previous South African government ruled by force using the police and military to violently suppress any dissent and this affected the society the new government inherited. That's from Francois. Excuse me. I'm sorry, are you saying that there is a government out there that doesn't rule by violence and squashes dissent? Hi, Steph. Um, no, that's not what I'm, what I'm saying. Is I'm saying that uh, I don't think you understand to what extent the government did rule by force, uh, or the previous government did that. And when you have that all of a sudden disappearing, there's a, a vacuum is left behind and people feel that they can do, uh, they can go on with disregard for the law until the pendulum swings back again. That was the point. Oh, uh, hang on. Sorry. I'm, I'm 
just kind of confused. So and I'm not trying to be oppositional. I just genuinely want to understand no. it. Um, so are you saying that prior to apartheid, prior to the uh, Africana government, that or, or even prior to, to any whites being on the continent at all, that the blacks did not uh, suffer or experience any kind of tribal violence or warfare? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, and yes, you can pull it that far back if you wanted to. Um, and that also brings into picture the or brings into play the context that you need to see it in. Um, and you can because, take so, sorry, just 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 for those who haven't seen the presentation, I'm sorry for interrupting, but yeah. uh, no the, um, the it, just from the 19, 1948 or so, 1949, when uh, apartheid came in, the life expectancy for blacks was like 37 or 38. And then it was well into the 60s by the time apartheid ended. So without a doubt, violence went down, uh, healthcare went up, nutrition went up. And of course, the, the population of blacks under white rule exploded tenfold uh, during, during, that, uh, during the time of, of the 20th century. So um, there was a vast reduction in mortality and violence among the population in Africa uh, when the whites were in charge. So I'm trying to figure out what you mean when you say there was this brutality, uh, because there was far less brutality um, and uh, uh, under, under white rule. I think that's where you're wrong. There was far more brutality under white rule. Um, it's just that... No, it no, no, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Life expectancy increased. Black population tripled. Just okay. uh, after, after the, like from the 1940s to the 1990s, and, yeah. and the life expectancy rose from 38 to 61. Under black rule, it's plummeted by nine years. So how can you say when far more people are alive and living far longer that there was an increase in brutality? Um, because you're not factoring in the worldwide increase in life expectancy over that time as well. Um, no, no, but since the whites stopped being in charge, it's gone down by nine years. Are you saying that it's gone down around the world since then? No. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm saying what happened was that all of a sudden the, the, the police state ceased to exist and that stopped virtually overnight. And then, and this goes for blacks and whites. People felt that they had, uh, there was nobody watching over them and they went, uh, and, and, and things then reacted as one could expect. But sorry, what do you mean by the police state? The previous government had a police state. No, I know what the word police state means. I'm asking you to explain yeah. what, what you mean by police state. For me, police state is like North Korea or uh, Stalinism or something like that, or, you know, the nightmare world of 1984, if you want to look at it through the fictional lens. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure how that relates to, and it's my lack of knowledge or whatever. I'm just not sure how that relates to uh, to uh, apartheid South Africa. Oh, well, there's, there's, <laughs> well, the imprisonment of um, political opponents is one example of it. Um, detention without trial is another example of it. Uh, people used to just disappear, and uh, they would be found uh, dead in a, in a in a prison cell uh, or a prison bathroom because, um, yeah, showers are slippery. Um, and this happened more often than, 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 than is commonly reported. 
Um, and so how often, uh, what, what are the numbers? How often does this happen? No, I don't have the numbers for you. And, 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 um, well, no, you, you're saying it happens more often than people think. Then you must have some idea of the I'm not trying to be, again, I'm not trying to be confrontational. No, I don't, I'm not I, disagreeing I, with I, you. I'm just trying to understand. You, yeah, I mean, um, I can't at this stage pull up statistics off, off. if you want me to, I can go look it up for well, you. No, one, one a year, it. one a year is bad. You know, a thousand a day, one a year is, is not great. A thousand a year is terrible. A thousand a day is terrible. It was a lot more than that. If you look at um, uprisings like they had in Soweto and they had in Sharpville, um, in those cases, there were uh, thousands killed, right? This wasn't insignificant. It I was never said it was. Okay. So, Mike, if you can just – I'm not disagreeing with you, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I've not heard of thousands killed in a single uprising, but I'm certainly happy to, uh, to have – Welcome to – you can go look up the – you can yeah. go look up the, the Soweto riots and the Shabful riots and so, um, you know. And, and, and so, so hang on. And, and you're saying that this uh, this aggression has changed from apartheid to now, where of course the ruling classes in in Africa are regularly singing songs called "Shoot the Boer, Kill the Boer," uh, and so on. Do you do you did you <laughs> do you not, think that that's significantly again, changed? Again, they, again, they're not regularly singing this. It's, oh, not it's, regularly, just once uh, in a while. No, yeah. So, so um, do you find that to be the case that in if I said, oh well, you know, the KKK didn't meet every day; it only meant every second Thursday. That that would be some kind of defense. No, it's not. It's, it's not a kind of a defense. But um, those that's also cherry picking. Um, it would be the same as me saying that the entire um, uh, American population supports the KKK because uh, some. KKK members do whatever they do. It's the same. It's the same extrapolation that you just can't do. Okay, we have some numbers here for um, Soweto uprising. The number of people who died is usually given as 176. Mm-hmm. The original government figure claimed only 23 students were killed, mm-hmm. and um, there are some estimates uh, up to 700, uh, but certainly not thousands. At least e- even at the highest estimates. Mm-hmm. And Sharpful also. And, well, hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. So you claimed thousands, um, okay. which I would assume would hang on, would, which I assume would be two to three thousand, and the figure uh, for more than one okay. group, Look, and not the government as, figure. As, as I is, said, uh, hang on, can... hang on, hang on. Sorry, do do I get a chance to finish my sentence? I'm just yeah, curious. Sure. Thank you. So you've said thousands, and the number appears to be 176. So if we say two to three thousand then, you know, you're off by a factor of 15 to 20. Okay. I said um, that thousands were killed. I don't know how many were killed in the specific incidents. I named two incidents. You said that was the Soweto uprising. I said uprising such as the Soweto uprising and the Sharpful uprising. But this is, I mean, (laughs) um, and this is getting stuck up on on, on statistics of of specific points. No, 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 no. Listen, you can't. You can't provide numbers and then be proven to have really exaggerated those numbers. You, you provided numbers to support your case. You radically um, were wrong about those numbers, and now you're saying, "Well, let's not get caught up on statistics." That's not a fair way to debate. I did. Um, I did mention when I said to you that uh, I cannot quote statistics. Um, and 
if you want me to get into a statistical conversation with you, then we will, um, then we can do this and then I can do my research and get back to you at a later stage. The point I was trying to make was there was a police state, whether you like it or not, and I lived through it. I was here. I had tear gas thrown at me during those times. So um, these things did happen. All right. Okay. So we looked up Sharpeville. I just looked up. Happened, but they Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry to interrupt you. Of course, I'm not. The, the question is not did they happen. The question is to what degree are you reliable when you're talking about numbers. And again, this is wiki. Uh, this is uh, whether this is true or not. Uh, I'm going to go with probably ish. So Sharpeville um, was uh, 69 people killed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In one. So on you one talked day. about thousands, and you mentioned these two, yes. and these two. Uh, add up during a little over. Time, I'm sorry. During, was I right in the middle of saying something? Yeah. You, you go ahead. You get out what you need to get out, and then I'll come back with the facts. Okay, you come back with the facts, and I'll still carry on afterwards. Okay. So you talked about thousands of people killed, and we've got 220 or whatever. So you're off by at least a factor of 10. And so when you're talking about uh, you know, your experience and you're trying to bring some facts. First of all, if you're going to come on somebody's show, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it, this is a show where it goes out to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people over time, and you're going to start putting numbers out, then mm-hmm. you kind of have a responsibility to tell the truth. Now, if this is something that's important enough for you that you have uh, wanted to call in and, and you've taken the time, which I appreciate, then you mm-hmm. should, you, we have a basic responsibility to get facts correct, to not be off by a factor of 10 when we're talking about a particular topic. That's not even close. I mean, if somebody said to you, oh man, I'm going to you know, come work for me and I'll pay you $100,000. And then you find out that you're actually only going to get paid $10,000 or $5,000, you'd be really upset. And I'd say, well, you know, I don't want to get hung up on numbers. It's like, well, no, you promised 100000 You're paying me 10000 or 5000 You're off by a factor of 10 or 20. That's important. That's <laughs> important. You can't just sort of say, well, I want to get hung up on statistics because you're coming with this. There's this police state. And then next thing you say, there's thousands. And it turns out that there's barely 200 and change. Uh, that's important. It, it, and the reason okay. it's important okay. is I don't know what to. Tr- I don't know how to trust what you're saying if something this important to you is this misunderstood in terms of facts by by you. Okay, I still stand by my fact that thousands were killed by the police during the uh, apartheid government. But I don't think we've ever made the argument that violence did not occur in South Africa during various yes. political regimes. Okay. <laughs> And, and, and my point that I'm making is that one, when, when a regime like that changes, then, then a vacuum is created afterwards. And if you look at com- countries that have gone through similar changes, such as you've seen with all of the Arab Spring countries, where they've gone through similar, really fundamental upheavals, and you look at what is going on there currently, um, and you compare that to what is going on in South Africa, then uh, that that puts a different uh, glance on it, or a different, you can um, then you see it differently. That was the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I'm I'm still not sure exactly what point that is, but um, with regards to the Sharpeville massacre, 
Uh, just for those who don't know, this occurred 21st March 1960 uh, at a police station, South African township of Sharpville uh, in Transvaal, today as part of Gauteng. So there was a, the, these pass laws, which is where you had to, you know, Palestinian style, you had to show your papers to, to pass a particular homeland. Uh, so they demonstrated against these pass laws. Uh, there was a crowd of about 5,000 to 7,000 uh, blacks uh, protesters. And then they went to the police station. And um, some people say the crowd was peaceful. Others state that the crowd had been hurling stones at the police and that the shooting started when the crowd started advancing towards the fence around the uh, police station. And um, so I don't know the details. I don't know if anybody does know the details, but it's not, you know, that there were there were children playing tag and a police helicopter opened fire from them overhead. Uh, they had a day of protesting where there was no violence. They advanced upon, along, uh, upon a police station um, and the police uh, opened fire to, to drive them back. Uh, whether or not there was aggression involved, I don't know. I mean, I've certainly seen protests um, in, in other communities where I can understand why the police would feel uh, alarmed. But um, it's usually not a police state if you can protest against it peacefully. Now, in most governments, if you attack the police, in fact, in all governments, if you attack the police, you are going to be fired upon. Uh, that is the nature of the state. It's the nature of the police. And I'm not sure that it would be specific to South Africa, because I don't remember there being five to 7,000, um, say, people in Russia in 1950 able to protest against Stalin. Uh, that would just simply never have happened. There weren't five to 7,000 people trying to protest against Chairman Mao under the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. And there certainly weren't a whole bunch of communists who were able under Hitler's regime to protest against uh, national socialism. And so I don't know that you're really in the same or an accurate description of what I would call a police state if people have the chance for peaceful protesting. And then when the police feel threatened, the police open fire, which is common to all governments. Uh, I just think that's not a necessarily a very accurate description of what a police state is. Okay. At that stage, one did, uh, you didn't have the right to protest. Um, so no, it says right here. It says right here. After a day of demonstrations against the past laws. Yeah. So you were, and, they, they did, they did and, protest. Yeah, but these protests weren't allowed. But they protested, and they were not aggressed and, against and, the and, protesting. And, they were yes, aggressed against when they advanced upon the police station. And the obvious conflict, the obvious conflict came out. No, 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 you're not this understanding what, what I'm saying. Expect. In it's any government, happens. if you attack a policeman, the policeman can shoot you. All right. <laughs> so that, um, the causes of all those things are also all debatable. Again, that's not the point that I'm making. <laughs> and I lived throughout this. You cannot tell me that uh, that there wasn't uh, or the government didn't rule by force through the police and the army because they did. Every government rules government. by force. Every We're not making the case that that didn't even, happen. No, no, this is even more. All right. Um, you know, and and. The point is then when, when, when you have a big change in the, in, in the status quo as it was then, then uh, things change and, 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 and the pendulum quite often swings the other way. And, and, and so one has to look at South Africa within that context. You cannot look at it um, as if it was a mature democracy to start off with. 
and uh, apply the same the same yardsticks as you would to a mat mature European democracy. And um, so, sorry, are you saying that yeah. we should have lower standards because it was a it, it's a young democracy? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you if you do not take the context into consideration, then you end up addressing the wrong issues, or you you you. You, you put blame in the wrong places. All right. Um, and if one doesn't see the South African con situation within the context, then you will end up addressing the wrong issues and you will, st and, 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 and you will point towards the wrong. Uh, okay, but you're just making sorry. You're just making you're just making generalities out here. Like you need to identify the problem in order to solve it. Otherwise, you're going to solve the wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, but that that just there's no content to that. You're just giving me a cup, saying it's full of something, but I don't even know what's in there. Okay, so give me some content. Give me some actual facts and okay. arguments rather than blasé generalities about let's do things better and make better decisions and be wiser and smarter and nicer. I mean, I don't know what any of that means. So give me something practical and useful that that uh, is fact based. Um, let's fake. Okay. <laughs> so for, um, as a, as a white South African today, um, there's quite a number of freedoms that I have now that I didn't have before. All right. And, uh, these ones could be political freedom. I'm free to join any political party that I want. No political parties are banned. Um, I, I don't stand a chance of being imprisoned for joining a political party that disagrees with the government. Um, that is a freedom that I now have. I'm sure if that freedom was taken away from people in, 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 in uh, mature democracies such as Europe, there would be a huge upcry or a huge outcry if that freedom was lost. Um, another one, I have, I have the freedom of association. I can, I can meet with anybody. I can marry anybody. I can, um, I, I can do all those things. These were illegal before. Um, wait, you, know, you I, couldn't meet with blacks before? You couldn't gather with, 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 uh, if there was a group of, of, of people together, then it would be classified as an illegal gathering. And, wait, wait hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. I just make sure I want to, this is surprising to me having visited South Africa and, and played and chatted with blacks quite a bit. I mean, so what you're saying is if, if there's a group of blacks playing football and you join them, that's illegal. Like you can't associate with. What I'm saying, there was on the statute, there was a law which uh, was um, against illegal gatherings. So and, and the state used those, used those laws to specifically target um where people would be gathering together to uh, form a group or form a form a political party or whatever you would want to do that. If you were just meeting socially on the street, that would not be an issue. But those laws were on the on the books, especially to uh, to address or to to prevent um, people from getting together and uh, forming an opposition to the government. All right. Um, so uh, under under freedom of association, one could include, I can I can live where I want to, I can uh, I can buy property where I want to. Um, there's no longer laws which tells me in which area of the country I'm allowed to buy a, a, a house or allowed to 
uh, own land, you know, and those are freedoms that are that 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 uh, one thinks of only being extended to the black people, but it's also extended to the whites. Um, but are there? Um, sorry, uh, I mean, would there be areas where you would be nervous to buy? Perhaps? Where I would be nervous to buy? Yes, of course, there would be places that I wouldn't buy, but there are other places where I would also want to buy. Right. Okay. So, so I mean, you have okay. some freedoms, uh, but of course, because crime has gone up so enormously, there would be areas that you might have been able to buy in before that it would be f- impractical for you to buy now, or dangerous, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just the property values are not very great in places like that, yeah. And also where, um, where you know, the sort of freedom of association, uh, because the crime has gone up, and there's, of course, some hostility uh, unleashed towards uh, white people, which we can, you know, discuss the causes perhaps another time. But there may be places where you would feel nervous to, uh, to associate uh, because of a fear of uh, attack or, or danger. Um, only, only, only suburbs where uh, the crime rate is high, but I... I have I never experienced any um, animosity or any hatred or any fear of any black person that I meet on the street, whether it be in in town or whether it be in the black areas. I, I can walk in there no problem. I, so I, you I, have uh, you've not experienced any of the nothing. increase in crime that is statistically occurring across the country. <laughs> yes, of course, I've experienced the increase in crime. Sorry, you just said that yeah. you, you, you've not faced any fears um, being outside your house, but then you say you've no, experienced an increase in crime? Yes, but I don't, I don't, I don't experience a fear of being outside my house. Uh, sorry, so the, what are the increases in crime that you've experienced? I'm, again, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just I'm trying to follow what you're saying. What, what are the increases in crime that you've experienced? I, um, I, I don't even know. I mean, I've had, I've had one break-in in the last... Eight years, all right. But I have I've moved to to a different town, so uh, where the crime is significantly lower to where I was before, um, and there was was it, the crime. to me was never an issue. It really wasn't an issue. And what is the um, what is the town that you've moved to? Um, well, I, I lived in Clay, in, in Cape Town. In, the, in one of the suburbs of Cape Town, and I've moved to a small town, small coastal town outside of Cape Town. And why do you think the crime is lower there? Because it's a smaller town. I don't know that that's always the case. I mean, some small towns can have still fairly high crime. Do you think there's any other reason? Mm, no. Why? What, what are you alluding to? No, I'm not alluding to anything. I'm just, I'm just curious. Mm. I mean, I'm curious why, if you're not experiencing any crime to where you've moved, but the crime in the country as a whole uh, is, is going up, then it would seem to me that... Did your break-in occur in Cape Town? Mm. Well, there while I was staying there, yes, and while I was staying here, yes, once while I was staying here. Wait, um, so you said you had one break-in, but you've had two? In, I've been here for eight years where I've had one break-in. Um, and before that, when I stayed in Cape Town itself, there I think I had one or two break-ins. And is where you're um, is where you're staying 
a fairly ritzy area, a fairly high priced area? No, no, it's quite no, quite, quite, no, not at all. <laughs> not at oh, all. Oh, so you you bought you you bought uh, or or you've moved to a, a poor neighbourhood? No, it's not a poor neighbourhood. I moved outside of the city. I moved out of out of the city to quiet coastal town. Well, I mean, coastal towns, at least in in most places, are more uh, a pricier because you know people like to live by the ocean and so on. Would you say that yeah. um, the house price is uh, median or top twenty five percent or top ten percent or lower? Or? No, it's it's average. There are there are expensive houses and there are cheaper houses, um, and there's uh, it's not that it's a. Uh, it's particularly white town. There's as many non-whites in, in, as there are whites, or even way more um, non-whites than there are whites. Uh, it's just um, uh, the one the one problem that we do have here is are these um, the I think it's like meth, uh, the drug addicts that come and steal copper pipes. Um, that we have because it's. A, because it's quiet coastal town, uh, where most houses, uh, most of the bigger houses are unoccupied during the, because it's holiday homes that people have, so the homes, the houses stand empty all all week long, or most of the year the houses stand empty. So obviously it's prime pickings for, for guys who are looking for copper pipes so they can steal to 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 pay for the next fix. Oh, so so the houses would be vacation second vacation homes. Yeah. See that that indicates quite a bit of money, right? To have a second coastal, like second by the sea vacation home, that's quite uh, quite quite a bit of money. I, I don't have a second vacation home by the sea. That's quite a bit of money, right? <laughs> I thought most Canadians have a little hut by the by a lake somewhere. Absolutely not. That's very yeah. expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, Francois, yeah, there's, the crime, there's gated communities at various points in Detroit. It doesn't mean that Croyd is, yeah. Detroit isn't an extremely high-crime area. Yeah. Um, honestly, I mean, I, I, I experience crime so seldom. Um, well, I, yeah, it, it, it really, it, 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 when I see these reports going out, I, I kind of wonder, is this possible? Um that we're living in the same country. And well, it, it, so for instance, uh, the, the Cape Town um, is not only the the most violent city in South Africa, Cape yeah. Town is, is the most violent city in the entire continent of Africa. Yeah. And and, and the other previous and calling did you, was did you, from so did you see did you see much did you see much violence in Cape Town at all? None. Okay, so then you must be living far away from the crime. Because the crime is certainly there. It's the most violent city yeah. in all of Africa. And, and, and you say you've never yeah. witnessed anything, so then you're living far away from the crime. And the, the crime, there are crime areas, uh, which is, I would imagine the American equivalent would be these gang-infested uh, gang uh, neighborhoods, inner-city neighborhoods. And there are these, these hot spots where you do have a lot of gang warfare, and uh, that's what probably contributes to the to the high murder rate and the high crime rate. Um, it's it's you know, and I'm I'm not saying that the crime rate is less than other countries in Europe and America. Um, that definitely is not so. The crime rate here is higher, 
um, my my point is just that my life is not that affected by crime. Um, my life is more affected. I have a bigger problem with baboons coming through my window than I have with burglars coming through my window. And I never, I never even had burglar bars until the baboons started coming through my window and take, helping themselves to what was in my fridge. Um, now you have you have of course lost uh, some rights as well um, since the end of apartheid in particular of course because of the affirmative action towards blacks you have lost some significant capacity to apply for and get jobs uh, because of the color of your skin most definitely yes yeah um, however uh, that does not reduce the opportunities that I have um, what of course it does by no, definition it, it must. <laughs> um, in, a, in, in, in a sense, it makes me look for the opportunities that I have, that I, that, um, I, I now cannot rely on a, 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 a sheltered employment. I, I now have to look after myself, which, which was the kind of ethos that was installed in most white South Africans. Okay. From hang on. The day just, they were just born. because I, th I think we're not coming from the same place of reality, right? So if there are laws against blacks getting jobs, would you say that it reduces their opportunities? Yes, obviously, yeah. Okay, good. So if there are laws against whites, unless reality is racist, it must also reduce opportunities for whites. If there are laws against blacks getting jobs, it reduces opportunities for blacks. If there yes. are laws against whites getting jobs, it must reduce opportunities for whites. Mm -hmm. Yes, but that's, but that's also opened my eyes to the other opportunities that I never saw. And that I never... Okay, and would you, would you say that to blacks if they're complaining that there's systematic discrimination against them to say, well, you should just open your eyes to opportunities that, that, that will... That's a benefit to you because it will open your eyes to other opportunities you might not have thought of. Definitely, yes. Oh, okay, good. Have you made that case to black people about how apartheid was, was good because it gave them opportunities to go to new places they hadn't been to? Um, no, because the analogy doesn't quite hold. Um, but um, I do have a number of discussions with black people and um, a, lot of the, a lot of them do agree that um, affirmative action is not actually a good thing for them because it tends to be misused in you know and, and ends up being cronyism rather than actually addressing the issue that it was uh supposed to have addressed um right so yeah <laughs> even in the country there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of discussion about the fact that that uh, affirmative action is not actually um as beneficial as one would think it is um but again, again, the previous national party government had a very similar policy um, to em to employ whites before, um, and typically they were employed in state enterprises such as the railways, the uh, police, the army, and all those kind of things. Um, and uh, you know that that had its same effects and. A lot of those guys who, who, who through the, pre the affirmative action of the previous government, were in were sitting in uh, sort of 
protected employment or sheltered employment in government uh, institutions now all of a sudden found that they were without uh, that shelter and, and without a secure future anymore. Um, and that made a lot of whites unhappy at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so again, it's, it's, it's the context in which you must see it, um, is that even the whites today that, that are complaining about not being able to get government jobs or get, uh, you know, jobs in any state enterprise, um, they are the descendants of the same guys who benefited from exactly the same system, which was before, just uh, the roles were reversed. Yeah, so, of course, two wrongs don't make a right. And, exactly, uh, yeah. Uh, so, okay, I'm, I'm going to move on. I appreciate the call. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always fascinating to hear from uh, listeners from other countries. I uh, just wanted yeah. to um, I mean, yeah, give just... some more details. Sorry, let me just go on. I just wanted to give a few more details about the, uh, the Sharpeville Massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, this is um, a group of between five and 10,000 people converged on the local police station in the township of Sharpeville, and they were offering themselves up for arrest for not carrying their passbooks. The Sharpeville police were not completely unprepared for the demonstration. <laughs> as they'd already been forced to drive smaller groups of more militant activists away the previous night. Mm -hmm. Many of the civilians presented, sorry, many of the civilians present attended to support the protest, but there is evidence that the uh, PAC, I'm so sorry, I just missed what that was. Oh, Pan-African Congress? Congress? That's a black political party? Yeah, very... Okay, there is evidence... There is evidence that the PAC also used intimidating means to draw the crowd there, including the cutting of telephone lines into Sharpeville, the distribution of pamphlets telling people not to go to work on the day, and coercion of bus drivers and commuters. So, of course, some of the crowd was there by choice, and some of them seems to have been there by uh, coercion. By 10 o'clock... I assume this is in the evening. By 10 p.m., a large crowd had gathered, and the atmosphere was initially peaceful and festive. Fewer than 20 police officers were present in the station at the start of the protest. Later, the crowd grew to about 20,000, and the mood was described as ugly, prompting about 130 police reinforcements, supported by four Saracen armored personnel cameras, to be rushed in. The police were armed with firearms, including Sten submachine guns and Lee-Enfield rifles. There was no evidence that anyone at the gathering was armed with anything other than rocks. F-16 saber jets and Harvard trainers approached to within 100 feet of the ground, flying low over the crowd in an attempt to scatter it. The protesters responded by hurling a few stones, striking three policemen and menacing the police barricades. Tear gas proved ineffectual and policemen elected to repel these advances with their batons. At about... Uh, one o'clock, sorry, it was 10 o'clock in the morning earlier. About one o'clock, the police tried to arrest a protester, resulting in a scuffle, and the crowd surged forward. The shooting began shortly thereafter. Uh, these are not general police state. Police state tactics are like kick your door in, in the middle of the night and drag you off to a concentration camp or put you uh, in a box and, and shoot you uh, and then throw you in an unmarked grave. To me, that's police state stuff. In this situation, there was, of course... Um, uh, a multiple, uh, multiple, many thousands, tens of thousands of people protesting, and there was no problem as long as it was a peaceful protest. Uh, when they, and they tried a series of things to to repel the protesters when the mood turned uh, ugly. Uh, so they got reinforcements. Uh, they um, tried to scatter the crowd with uh, airplanes uh, flying low, which of course is peaceful relatively, again according to police state situations and then they tried 
to um, repel the crowd or the, the mob, I guess, at this point with tear gas. And then they tried to use batons and the crowd surged forward, uh, I guess, in a very ugly mood. And the police began shooting, apparently, in uh, self-defense. Again, is this great? Of course it's not great. I mean, I'd rather be no government at all. But uh, this is not in uh, accordance with um, what I would call police state tactics, wherein the protest is fine as long as there's no aggression against the cops. Protest all you want. And then when the aggression begins to grow, they try at least four peaceful means or at least non-lethal means of um, responding to the aggression of the mob. And uh, then uh, when the mob is going to overpower the police, uh, as they probably felt uh, they had to shoot, which is um, standard police practice in those situations across the world and in all circumstances, uh, even among the most peaceful um, and, and small government of countries. So, again, this is just what I've read. I don't know what the truth is, but you people can research it more themselves. So I'm going to move on to the next caller, but thanks very much. A very, very great pleasure to chat Here's with you. Whole... And who's up next? Sorry, we got to move on, man. I can't keep doing these midnight shows, but okay. uh, feel free to call back in again. All right, Mike, who's up next? All right, Colby is up next. He wrote in and said, My brother and I were recently discussing evil, which brought a question to mind. I went back and re-listened to Steph's podcast, An Introduction to Evil, from a year ago, so I am refreshed on what evil is. My question, however, is, are there varying degrees of evil, or is evil an absolute? Having grown up in a statist and religious environment, a word like evil becomes very emotionally charged and is typically reserved for the worst offenders, i.e. Hitler, Stalin, Voldemort, oh, don't say it three times, can we, uh, as philosophers, group the worst of the worst with politicians whom tread into the evil spectrum without fully immersing their ideology in evil? Colby, are you trying to say, like, is um, a typical politician, are they just flip a switch, evil or not evil kind of thing? It's kind of like that. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say because, you know, typically our society, whenever we brandish the word evil, we do so hesitantly we try to you know reserve it for like the hitlers you know someone that's quite obviously evil but whenever we have a very broad definition like we do uh, from steph's podcast um it's easy to get this e- this easy creep into the evil spectrum and i was wanting to know you know are th- obviously there's minor evils but do we well, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. That's begging the question. You can't say obviously there's minor evils if we're trying to figure out whether there's a gradation to evil at all, right? Right, right, right. I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that I would feel comfortable saying that we can only reserve evil for like Stalin and and Chairman Mao and and because Mao is often forgotten, right? I guess because he wasn't European, but um, or. Eastern European, but uh, Chairman Mao is, uh, I think, arguably the greatest mass murderer in human history. Um, I mean, 50 million, like some insane number of people died as a result of his horrendous black-toothed leadership. And um, I don't know the degree to which we want to identify evil with an individual in that stuff as well, because Chairman Mao uh, did not kill 50 million people. I mean, he, he couldn't. I mean, you, you, you don't have time. Your hands get sore. Uh, the recoil, you know, you just don't have enough gas. Like you can't, right? So in terms of was, was he the evil? No, it was everyone who accepted 
his rule. It's everyone who accepted communism. Uh, and of course, he was placed into power by um, communist spies working um, uh, in the uh, foreign department and over there in China. Uh, so um, it is all of the people who supported his rule, uh, who pulled the triggers, who were willing to incarcerate based on his say-so. The evil there is not concentrated on a single individual. Like we like to say, oh, Hitler was the evil guy uh, as a way of letting everyone else in Germany off the hook. No, Hitler was uh, a, a, a tiny shadow cast by a monolithic self-delusion, uh, hatred, and trauma of the German people. Uh, so um, when everybody has a responsibility to be critical at all times, especially if they ask their children to think for themselves and be critical and, and not just do what the crowd says. You know, I'm sure that German mothers, uh, just like every mother uh, in the history of the world, when their kid did something wrong, and the kids said, well, everyone else was doing it. They say, oh, well, if everybody else was jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you do it too? Yeah, that's just, this is like parenting ethical nagging 101. I mean, everybody says, well, you can't just go along with the crowd because you've got to think about your own self-interest and your own judgment and you're morally responsible um, despite what the mob is doing. And I'm sure Germans told that to their children just as everyone always has. And Germany, of course... Uh, home of Martin Luther and the Protestant tradition uh, very much focuses on individual conscience. And uh, they rebelled, of course, against the medieval practice of indulgences, which was the selling of forgiveness for sins. And eventually it turns out that you could sell uh, in advance. Uh, people can say, oh, I'm going to go spend the weekend uh, in the Rhineland with my mistress. Uh, you know, here's three gold pieces. Be sure to bless me ahead of time so I can go and shag myself senseless without feeling any guilt, because that's only a turn on to Italians. And so the, the, the focus on individual conscience and the focus on don't go along with the crowd and the fact that everyone else is doing it is never an excuse for immoral behavior uh, means that um, uh, the Germans were responsible for the rise of Hitler because the country was in trauma. Their country was uh, in a disaster after, the, um, after World War I and, of course, after the um, Weimar hyperinflation and all of that. And, you know, Ludwig von Mises had already written. He wrote his classic on socialism in the early 1920s, you know, more than 10 years before Hitler really got his chancellorship handed to him by Baron von Tutelhead or whatever the hell his name was. And um, so there, was, there were answers out there for the German people. There were answers around no central banking. There were answers around free trade. There were answers around um, lower taxes and smaller government. All of those answers had been worked out by the classical liberals. They'd been enacted by the American revolutionaries. They'd been theorized and produced by a wide number of Austrian economists and other economists uh, who were working in the 1920s and the 1930s. And they also had, you are your own conscience, and uh, they also had, you can't go along with the flow of the crowd because you are responsible for your own moral decisions. They had all of that stuff at their fingertips. And what did they do? Well, they went all kinds of Nazi. <laughs> and that is simply the result of a whole series of individual decisions. A whole series of individual decisions. I mean, after I put out the truth about the migrant crisis and my plea for uh, self-defense of the fading embers of European civilization. People are all like, well, what can we do? Everyone around me disagrees with you. Well, fuck them. God, can you imagine if the first 20 Nazis were ostracized by everyone around them? Hey, look at that. No World War II. 
Isn't that nice? There are 50 or 60 million people still alive, and all you had to do was turn your back on the first few assholes, and everything else is fine. Isn't that a little bit nicer than what came afterwards with nuclear bombs and Zyklon B and concentration camps and the cementation of power in Soviet Russia and the, the ending up of, of um, communism in China with 50 or 60 or 70 million dead in a single decade? I mean... All that has to happen is you ostracize the first couple of assholes, and after that, it's sunshine, roses, and unicorn farts on your cereal, which tastes like dew. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. All you have to do is ostracize the first few assholes who want to take society down a very dark road. Everything's great. But then when I say to people, okay, well, you've got to start ostracizing those of you who want to have European civilization go back to the Middle Ages by having a bunch of middle-aged people, middle-aged, middle-ages style people come into the country. <gasps> I can't possibly ostracize anyone who wishes for the downfall of my entire civilization and everything my ancestors spent about 3,000 years building up because they might get upset and pe- my, people might call me xenophobic. Sticks and stones, brother. Sticks and stones. It's either that or things get a whole lot uglier. So um, that would be, uh, you know, so do we want to say, oh, Hitler's evil? And it's like, no, the, the reason we say that, or Stalin is evil, well, it's because there are lots of choices that individuals make. They make cowardly, bad, shitty, stupid, revolting, horrible, immoral choices. And then they want to say to the person they surrender their moral conscience to, he's evil. But that's like me saying, that guy in the mirror, I don't know, he's pretty ugly, kind of annoying, really spotty. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's a mirror, right? Uh, Hitler was a mirror of German decisions and German choices. And um, the degree to which... Uh, now, people want to concentrate all that evil on Hitler is the degree to which they're just missing the whole point. There was no magical evil guy with Hitler who had incredible neural-based mind control over tens of millions of Germans. He didn't. They only did what he told them to do. And they took the easy route of selling their soul to a charismatic, terrifying demagogue. And then they say, oh, yeah, no, that was no, Hitler was the bad guy. Well... If you take orders and you shoot someone, you're kind of more responsible than the person who gave the order because you're pulling the trigger, not him. So I, I'm just concerned that we, we, we focus this, this word evil on these historical figures who only gained power due to the cowardice and subservience of millions of people. And somehow we say Hitler is evil and that becomes the giant evil son and we can't see the constellation of stars called people giving him all that power uh, on the far side of him. I kind of think that's where, where my question was coming from is because in the society and the kind of culture that I grew up in, um, they tended to reserve that word that, you know, they tended to reserve evil for those kind of people. You know, they reserve it for Hitler, they reserve it for Stalin, they reserve it for whomever. And, if you try to bring that up, you know, say, no, what you are doing is evil, they'll they, oh, no, 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 I'm I'm not evil. Yeah, I, I, maybe I did something I'm bad. I'm not Hitler. Yeah, they, that's what they bring up. They're, I'm, I'm not near as near as bad as this evil person over here, but rather than, you know, ac- accepting the absolute of this thing that you are doing is evil, without a doubt, they they push it off. They get, make an emotionally charged, <clears throat> excuse me, they make an emotionally charged argument, and they... Um, you know, just to protect themselves and protect the culture that's that surrounds them, um, and that's that's kind of where I was coming from is with the question because even after you know 
getting into philosophy and uh, having uh, the arguments set up before I got into philosophy um, that would lead me down this path, it's still something that's ingrained in my psyche that you kind of have to almost extricate yourself from um, to be able to accept, you know, well, yeah, but but people only people only support that kind of evil because they can get away with it by pretending that that other person is evil. You know, if there's some crazy guy like strung out on on meth <clears throat> who's been listening to a huge amount of Pink Floyd and Nirvana together, and he's standing on this high bridge, and you and I and a hundred other people are standing underneath him, chanting, "Jump, jump, 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 jump." You got nothing to live for, you pussy, you coward. Jump. We want to see you splatter. We love you. If you jump, you're the best guy ever. If you jump, look out. There's a demon behind you. Jump. We'll catch you. And then we just step back and watch that guy pull a David Letterman watermelon-style head on the pavement. Well, do we just say, well, I guess that guy was kind of suicidal? No. We are complicit in what... What happened to him? And people want to say, oh, that guy was just, I was just standing there. That guy was just suicidal. No, no, no. Were you chanting John, chant? Were you saying to a guy strung out on drugs that he was being chased by a demon that you were going to catch him and save him? I mean, this is the degree to which words can affect life. Uh, words are weapons, sharpen the knives, as the old In Excess song goes. And um, Hitler, um, everybody was just shouting, rule, 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 rule. Tell us we're great and we'll obey you. Replace our conscience with your psychosis. And that way we can just drift along in your madness. And we don't have to make any moral decisions for ourselves. And we don't have to oppose anyone ourselves. And we don't have to get in trouble with those around us. God forbid. Human beings would generally rather die than get in trouble from those around us. And I understand why. Because, you know, without the tribe, you you suffer either personal or gene death. Because they don't guard you while you sleep. Uh, or they, uh, you know, as the Eskimos do with uh, borderlines, they just, uh, or sociopaths, they just put them on an ice floe and push them out to sea. Uh, or, you know, even if you survive all of that, no one's going to mate with you. A woman's going to mate with you if you've been ostracized. And so um, so conformity to peers makes sense, you know. Like, I mean, they talk about uh, in, um, in in individuals' development and growth, they talk about the non-shared environment. You know, it's, it's very, very um, keen, very key uh, on how people develop. It's less parents and more peers, to put it very bluntly and not exactly exactly. But, um, you know, when, when, if you have, um, if you have parents with a strong accent, you end up speaking like your peers rather than your parents, even though it's your parents who kind of teaches you how to speak. And that's, of course, genetically, we're focused more horizontally than we are vertically. But genetically, we don't mate with our parents, we mate with our peers in the long run. And so, of course, we're going to focus more on pleasing our peers than in pleasing our parents, because our parents have already had their children. And, of course, we want to please our parents to some degree because having grandparents around is very helpful in the flourishing of genes in the long run. But we focus on our peers because that's who we breed with in the long run in order to survive. And so conformity to peers is perfectly natural. But that's why we have ethics. I mean, that's, I mean, that's like going to the doctor and the doctor says, man, you're 50 pounds overweight. 
And you say, I want to, he says, you got to lose some weight. And he, you're like, but chocolate is really tasty. And it's like, I know chocolate is tasty. That's why you have to not eat it because you're not an idiot, right? And it's like, I know that conformity is fun and I know that it can be uncomfortable to be non-conformist, but that's why you have a brain and a conscience. That's why we need philosophy. So don't be an idiot. <laughs> you know, do the right thing, even if it's uncomfortable. Put down the cheesecake if you want to lose weight, even though you really want to eat it. It's not brain surgery. And uh, so... So, yeah, I'm just, I'm always concerned that, that people try to focus their, uh, oh, that guy was evil, you know, like he just, uh, Hitler ran the whole war himself, you know, he just got up really early, built himself a panzer, uh, dug around for some shells, and then flew a plane, and then drove the panzer, and then, uh, you know, popped some Zyklon B into a canister, and then he rounded up some more people and put them in cattle cars, and then he went out and shot some homosexuals, and then he locked up some mentally incompetent people, and anyone with a vaguely free market bent who was left in the country, and then he waltzed over to Vienna, and he set fire to all of Sigmund Freud's papers, and then he went and chased Jung around a little bit and then he chased some more people overseas and then it's like oh shit I left that t- panzer running god I gotta run out and get the panzer oh man it's out of gas oh my god I gotta go to Syria and dig some holes <laughs> it's like that's not how it worked ah <sighs> okay I think I mean yeah I think that covers it, it yeah answers my question um, you know, I'll have to, um, I've got a two-year-old that's fighting bedtime, so I'll have, I'll, um, scoot off. Okay, here no, no problem at all. You, uh, uh and before I go, I do, I do want to thank you and Stoyan and, uh, Mike for all that you do. Um, it's been a great, great help in my own life and my, uh, you know, my two sons have benefited greatly. So my sincerest thanks to all of you. You oh, are very welcome. So much, and thanks Toby. for listening. That's awesome. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, up last is Aaron. And Aaron wrote in and said, I am a college junior who is interested in taking a chunk of my summer work savings and trying my hand at the stock market. It dawned on me that after 12 years of public school, I never received an education in money management or how to accrue wealth. Was that on purpose or merely another reason why the Department of Education has been nothing but a money pit since, it, except, since its inception in 1979? It dawned on me that in my 12 years of public school, along with my two years of college, no one has taught me a thing about stocks, let alone saving my money, investing, or anything else that would actually apply in the real world for that matter. If we as a society aren't educating people on how to make money and take care of themselves in the long term, pardon my case-selected strategy worrying about the future, then why the hell are we funneling so much money into the Department of Education and student loans? That's from Aaron. Hmm. So, a lot of comments and questions. Is there anything you'd like me to focus on? Uh, not necessarily. I'm just going to defer to your better judgment and wisdom, considering I'm a neophyte in the philosophy and just about thinking in general, in the, for lack of a better term. Well, of course, I mean, the, the government doesn't want you to really understand economics. They don't mind you understanding Keynesianism or Krugmanism, <laughs> which is basically the idea that you can fight yourself a new atmosphere and then breathe it and then fight yourself an even bigger atmosphere until the economy turns into the red giant sea storm spot on Jupiter. But, um, yeah, they don't mind you hearing the economics that says, well, you know, see, governments need to tax when the economy is good and spend when the economy is bad. Because, you know, if it involves taxing or spending, the government's happy. The government sure as hell doesn't want you to understand how the currency 
quote works and i use that in the loosest possible sense right like um, they don't want you to know that when you go and borrow money from a bank the bank's not taking it from anyone else they're just making it up which is why everybody wants to be a bank and no one else gets to be so they don't want you to understand that uh, kind of stuff at all they certainly don't want you to understand that the free market is a good thing which is why when you hand over the education of the young to the state you are handing over everything to the state uh, this is no, because I mean, can you imagine a public school teacher saying, well, you know, the very best thing, kids, the very best thing is for there to be a free market, for there to be competition, uh, for there to be voluntarism, for a win-win negotiation to be occurring. Uh, now, here's four more days of algebra homework while I go off for my summer vacation. I mean, it's just because, the, you know, if they talk about that the, the quality comes out of the free market, they have to explain to children why they're stuck in a socialist gulag called government schools. I mean, it's ridiculous. It would be like bad comedy uh, for a, uh, a teacher to be focusing on how great the free market is when they're there because the government forces people to pay for government education and she can't be fired. And so, yeah, so the, like, they, they can't teach you about the free market. Otherwise, they're saying free market's the best. We have consciously designed a society that keeps children in the worst conceivable educational system because otherwise they get educated. I mean, they, they have to lie about all this stuff. They have to give the illusion of free stuff because they can't say, well, you see, government schools are paid for by coercion and counterfeiting and the creation of imaginary contracts with the unborn, which is basically just a bend over while we push a serrated <laughs> a tube of social contract up your ass. Uh, so they, they can't say, well, you know, violence is a really great way to get things done. I mean, violence paid for this whole school. Violence pays for this desk. Violence pays for this 1850 circa blackboard. Oh, wait, no. It's a whiteboard. We'll call that progress. Violence pays for my summer. Violence pays for the diabetes injections that my fat ass needs every single day of my life. Violence pays for your textbooks, which are really old and lots of really bored kids have done those little flip cartoons in them, or at least they used to back in the day. Uh, violence pays for uh, the gymnasium. Violence pays for the playground. Violence pays for the pool. Uh, so violence is the whole reason you're here. It's the whole reason I'm here. And uh, But make sure you don't push anyone in the playground because violence is really terrible. I mean, holy crap. I mean, the, the, the amount of lies that... And, and you don't... There's no plot. There's no plan for this. I mean, it's, it's just the way that self-interest works. You know, when, when you get people into a corrupt system, especially if they're facing children they have to control and who they're outnumbered by, people in a corrupt system facing children must automatically lie, must automatically dissemble, must automatically manipulate. There's simply, there's no conspiracy. You know, you know there's a, this is a weird conspiracy in advertising. I don't mean to blow your mind. I think it's a false flag. I mean, I've seen the same actress in different commercials. But let me tell you, man, there's a, there's this weird thing that goes on in commercials. Like, like if you get a commercial for Coca-Cola, have you ever noticed they always portray Coca-Cola in a positive light? I mean, there's no 360 view. There's no, there's no hint that it's bad for you. There's no hint that it will dissolve your bladder like an old penny. There's no hint 
that it makes you burp through your armpits. There's no hint that it's bad for your teeth. I mean, it's like, it's weird. Every single time I see an advertisement for a product, it's just all about the positive. That can't be accidental. There are negative things to say about just about every other product other than free domain radio. There are negative things to say, but you never once hear them. It's this weird kind of censorship. There must be some central agency, some government thing that's going on that's got the goods on everyone, that's got the NSA spying record that can see their big buns of bouncing browser history. There's, they've they've got to have something on these people because every single time, every single time, it's just nothing but positive about everything. How could that happen? Just think of the odds of that. That's like, even if it's 50-50, Coke is 50% good and 50% bad, every single Coke commercial is positive. That's literally like getting heads thousands of times in a row. That can't be an accident. It's like, no, that's just how advertised that self-interest, man. You don't get the gig if you don't. Anyway, so this is, um, once you give the government power over the kids, you just get more government until you run out of everything. (laughs) And then maybe you get a reset. So yeah, the fact that you haven't been educated about the stock market. Well, first of all, if you're any good at the stock market, why the fuck would you end up as a government teacher? (laughs) I mean, that's just, that's the saddest thing in the world, you know, like, I'm a beautiful opera. I'm the best opera singer in the world. And so you can catch me at karaoke Thursdays. <laughs> but hey, like, I get summer off, so there you go. I'm sorry? But hey, I get summers off, so there you go. That's my one little... Yeah, those, that, you know, those who can't teach, uh, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, teach Jim. And uh, I don't know who this Jim guy is, but apparently he's really hard to teach. And so anybody who's got any success whatsoever, why on earth would you be in a government uh, school like I, I remember uh, back in the dawn of the computer age, uh, there was a um, uh, I the only course I ever failed in my life was computer science, and it was when I got my first computer. And the reason being that it was um, you got to learn assembly by scratching in these tiny little cards, and then you'd ma- you'd mail them off. They'd be run through a computer. You would get the output the next day. Uh, and whereas at home, I was learning how to program um, in uh, assembler and. Uh, uh, basic and and other things just with a computer and a keyboard you could run it right away and you could do cool stuff and graphics and all that so so i i i, I got like 23 percent in the course you could have doubled it and i wouldn't have passed <laughs> and, and and also the teacher was was just terrible he was just terrible this was the dawn of the computer age this like wow like Okay, the school had these like ridiculous computers that were off campus like like you couldn't even see them they, they i don't know if they they used squirrels to take your scratch cards to run through the computer or something but this guy he was like he was really awkward and 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 just really bad at explaining things and all that and i remember thinking even at the time it's like dude this is the dawning of the greatest revolution since the gutenberg printing press shouldn't you be in the ground floor of some goddamn startup like shouldn't you be just like laying the foundation for your entire fortune and the future decadence of your offspring i mean why are you sitting here in a tiny little suburban school droning on about the importance of making sure you scratch your assembler code cards correctly because otherwise the machine (laughs) right shouldn't you be off there doing something really cool and 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 building a browser that processes only ascii uh, through uh, smoke signals i mean why are you here oh right because you're an idiot and you're a loser and you're hiding out here because it's easier than going out and changing the world. Less risk. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, um, I just I just wanted to go off on a little tangent real quick. I really wish I knew your show or anything like that when I was still in high school because I had like this stereotypical like uh, left wing nut job of a government and econ teacher. Imagine that combination. Like it was. Oh, he, crazy. he taught you government oh, no, and she, econ. She oh she okay so on top of that you throw on all that uh, mess and whatnot but we had so much indoctrination and so much left wing spin and what pissed me off is that she was doing this on the taxpayers dime which is just immoral to me because she wouldn't even try to present the other side like even when she did she would be strategic about it where she would go about finding the worst speaker you could like weasley old mark levin i don't know if you know who that is but he's like a radio commentator like basically he gets a call when rush limbaugh is off on vacation or something and he talks is he is he the bald guy yeah uh balding ish Mark Levin, I don't know if Yeah, I've actually I I I don't find him to be the greatest writer. I started reading one of his books and I've listened to a couple of interviews. Uh, I think he's actually kind of interesting, but you you had a he you had an issue with or she did. I agree, but I mean, it's just the fact that you had a bunch of 17 and 18-year-olds who obviously they didn't give a shit about any politics things. They just wanted to get to college and go and party and whatnot, and they weren't engaged at all because they were turned off by just the his manner of speech, where unless you were either a diehard conservative or someone who actually had their finger on the pulse of politics and wanted to listen, they weren't going to give him a try just because he wasn't a very good speaker. And I noticed that she picked him for the sole purpose of – because obviously she wanted to be like oh well i present both sides equally but she picked the person who would be the least engaging and throw that soundbite in and then just go back to a bunch of her uh liberal leftist status dogma and it just really i wish i could go back in time with the information that i know now especially by your show because i must say that i have just there have been days where i just binge watch your uh shows for hours on end and i'm very well informed and i just i'm a i'm a better articulator and a better arguer thanks to you so i just want to thank you for that and uh yeah i just wish i could go back in time and tear tear her a new one with the do you though i mean just 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 hang on hang on look first of all i i really appreciate your, your kind comments and i i that means the world to me but um do do you really Wish you could go back in time. I mean, wasn't ignorance a kind of... Can you imagine how difficult it would have been going through those classes, knowing what you know now? I'm in, you know, I'm in South Carolina, which, I mean, I'm probably the only South Carolinian who knows you exist. I mean, so... <laughs> I got that. I, I, I'm not sure how to take that, because I think <laughs> we're bigger than that. We but just okay. had a caller from Africa. You know that Africa is in North Carolina, not South Carolina, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. Mike will believe that because he's uh, Americans and they don't know that. You have as much outreach as you do because honestly, people need to be exposed to alternative media, not just because of the fact that they need to be taught what to think and just agree with you wholeheartedly, but the side of just being taught how to think critically, you know, because people don't preach objectivism in a way. But anyway, that's besides the point. Um, Oh, crap. I lost my train of thought. If you're willing to We were just up. talking about how you do the binge watching and all that. And I was saying thanks. But the question was, do, do you, would you really have wanted to go back and 
Oh yes, most definitely. And what with this woman? Now I'm one that I I live for competition and I live for conflict and I also enjoy challenging authority for the most part because when I was in middle school I was bullied a lot and I wasn't even afraid of the people who were bullying me. I was afraid of the statist. uh, school system that would be like, oh, well, if you do anything wrong or if you stand up for yourself, we'll put it on your permanent record that you're a violent sadist. And I was just afraid of everything. But then, thank now bend over. Here comes the pill monster. <laughs> I hit puberty and I got some testosterone in my blood, and I realized, you know what? Fuck that. I'm just gonna go on my own path and do that. And thankfully, I'm not a sheep anymore. Right. Well, good for you. I mean, you you sound uh, very articulate, and uh, you know, I, I appreciate seeing the ranks of the rational swell because you know <laughs> we've got a tsunami of idiots out there, and uh, we got to stand firm with each other. So um, I really I mean, appreciate I know exactly that. what you're talking about. I'm at a liberal arts college on the beach, so I'm surrounded by God knows how many Bernie Sanders stickers. It's infuriating. Like I can't even engage these people in political thought because they're they honestly think the word free exists in economics. Yeah, and if you don't want to give them free stuff, I mean, why why wouldn't you? I mean, why wouldn't you want to give people free health care? Do you just hate people? And why wouldn't you want to give people who are struggling free resources? I mean, I mean, it's like you want to just privatize oxygen, man, and just just like take everything away from everyone. I mean, the planet is all ours. You know, everyone should get blah, 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 right. It's just but they're ours, right? They are selected, as we've talked about in the gene wars. So they fundamentally have no idea of quality. And it's like, wait, man, I'm a bunny. You're a bunny. There's tons of grass here. Why can't I have grass? I mean, I'm not taking your grass. You've got more than enough grass for yourself. The grass is free. <laughs> so why, 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 why? Hey, man, I got a sex drive because I'm a bunny and I'm R selected. I got a sex drive that's through the roof. So I'm more than happy to trade economic freedoms for sexual freedoms because I like to fuck a lot more than I can possibly win in competition with trade. So yeah, give me the screwing and take away the property rights, and I'm happy as not a pig in shit, but a bunny in a tiny bunny vagina. So give me some grass, give me some pussy, and I don't really care about the rest of it. So yay, feel the burn. Oh, God. No, I even approach these people and be like, hey, do you want to give me 100 bucks? Because it's actually kind of uh, good on my side that I came from a very impoverished background. So like, well, I come from a place I'm, you know, screwed by the system. So you want to give me $100? And they always say no. And then I'm like, well, then how, why does the government supposed to work that way if you don't want to do it on an interpersonal setting? Because uh, it's easier to whine and get stuff than to work and earn stuff. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but this, this, these, uh, this also a lot of it comes out of, of course. Um, we have this very, very conflict averse parenting has been going on for the last generation or so. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of a conflict averse and then hyper conflict. And so what happens is, like I know this as being a stay at home dad. There's a lot of little course corrections that you need to make in your kids and to some degree in yourself. You need to like, nudge a little here, nudge a little bit there, sand down this rough edge, you know, build up this muscle. You need a lot of little course corrections throughout the day. You sure shit ain't going to get that in daycare, man. I worked in daycare. I know. And you're not going to get it in government schools. Uh, and so you, you really have to get it from a loving, present, right there uh, caregiver. What the hell are you doing with your mic, man? Oh. Sorry, it's a mess. Are you giving a blowjob to your microphone? Because <laughs> if so, can you turn on your webcam? Because, you know. Yeah. Uh, hey. yeah just if you, it's up. really distracting when I'm trying to talk. <laughs> anyway. 
Um, so, uh, so, uh, shit, what the fuck? Mike, what was I talking about? Now we find out if Mike was listening to you. My mind immediately went to blowjobs for webcam, so I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I completely got knocked. Type it in, Mike. No, <laughs> no, it's in your F1 key. <laughs> webcam blowjobs. Stoyan, help. Oh, no. Stoyan falling asleep. He's, he's in British time. Anyway, you're going on about daycare. Yeah, and... I was actually thinking oh, yeah, yeah. okay, so about parenting thing. a little well, course I'm... correction. All, all I needed, all I needed was uh, daycare webcams with, no, wait, hang on. Okay, so so need a lot of these little course corrections. And I'm willing to have conflicts with my daughter because we have so much great time, so much fun times together. That the conflicts are well worth it because we just, you know, and, and they're like, half a percentage time or a tenth of a percentage of time of, of the time we spend together. And so I'm willing to have those conflicts with her to stand firm and to make sure we both get what we want and focus on win-win. Lots of little course corrections and willing to have productive conflicts. So she doesn't whine. She Occasionally she'll, like we watch some internet video with the dogs doing this begging thing. And so she wants me to do something. She'll stand and do, do the little dog begging thing where their hands go back and the paws go back and forth. Clutch and cats do it too. So, 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 but she doesn't whine. And, and, you know, if I say, you know, we talked about this already, we made our decision, we had our deal. So, you know, unless something radical changes, we're not going to reopen it. We don't redeal over and over again, right? You make a deal, you stick to it. And um, that's not the case if you're working. If you've got two parents working, you have very little quality time. With, with your kids. Because, you know, you can get up, get them off to daycare, get them to school. There are always conflicts in the morning because everyone's in a hurry and everyone's late and who knows what traffic's going to be like. And then you don't see them during the day and then and then you've got to fight traffic to get pick them up or see them at home. And then you've got to get the food and you've got to help them with their homework and you've got to get them bathed and you got to, like, it's just, you've got to prepare them for the next day. You've got no relaxing quality, sit around, shoot the shit time, which is, to me, really essential. You know, just sit on the couch and, uh, hey, what are you thinking? What's in your mind? This is what I was thinking. I, I remember this and all that. I mean, that that unstructured time is, is really key. And that's intimacy. You know, uh, uh, a project plan called the working person's, the working parent's day is not intimacy. Uh, that's about as intimate as uh, getting uh, 300 people on an airplane in, in 15 minutes. And so what happens is, of course, when your parent is in a hurry, whining becomes much more effective. When your parent is not willing to have conflicts with you, whining is much more effective. If I complain, if I complain, then a busy parent will most likely get give me what I want. A parent who's in a rush, a parent who's got to get home and get get cooking, and you're like, I want a candy bar, and they're like, Oh, I don't embarrass me, and 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 so if you're in a rush and and you've not had a lot of quality time, and you got to get stuff done, and it's all like you feel like your day is like you're shot out of a cannon, and then just land somewhere splat against your bed, uh, you know, sixteen or seventeen hours later. Well, okay, so. Whining works then. Whining doesn't work with me because I'm willing to say, okay, well, let's sit down and talk about this. Is this how we really want to get things done in the family? Is whining really going to be how you want to get things in your life and all that? Or complaining too, complaining, right? As I've said before, it's like the half a Timbit thing, right? So there's this um, this uh, coffee shop in Canada. No, it's not like the coffee shop you're thinking of. This is like industrial diesel strength, uh, make your hair stand on end and make your nipples uh, tie themselves in knots uh, kind of coffee. It's good stuff, but it's not not high class stuff, right? I mean, it's 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 cup of joe, 
And it's, it's some of my favorite coffee. That and the evil flat white. Not only is the flat white a description of my singing style, but also is a very good coffee. But anyway, um, and so, you know, every now and then uh, she, she loves little chocolate Timbits, which are like the tiny little donut holes that they, anyway. So, you know, every now and then I'll just surprise her. Like, hey, I, you know, here's, here's uh, you know, half a Timbit. I'll bite half and I give her half whatever. She's like, oh, I only get half? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, five seconds ago, you weren't getting anything <laughs> that you were expecting. Now you're up half a donut. Are you really going to look at the whole donut and say you're down half a donut? Or are you going to look and say, hey, I wasn't expecting anything. I'm up half a donut. That's great. And um, so when we, we, this is the half a donut principle, right? Or half a Timbit principle. So whenever she complains, you know, like I get a treat and I take some and give some at her, it's like, oh, that's only half. I'm like, hey, half a Timbit, how you doing there? Are you up half a Timbit or are you down a whole Timbit? I'd focus on the up half a Timbit thing. And um, so I'm willing to have those conversations and, and ned those principles into our relationship so she doesn't whine and she doesn't really complain. Um, it doesn't mean she doesn't, fight hard for what she wants. I respect her for that. I expect her to do nothing less. I know I do. But um, parents who don't have the time, parents who don't have the resources, parents who are busy, parents who are tired, uh, parents who are um, stressed, and therefore when you're stressed, you're more susceptible to social pressure, like, oh, funny looks if your kid has a conflict or whatever. And so what happens is your kids who grow up in, in either single mom households where they're working or um, a dual parent a dual working income families, um, whining works, tantrums work. They work really, really well. Because when you're in that situation as a parent, when you're stressed, tired, rushed, hurry, everything is short term. Everything is like, I've just got to get through today. Everything is like, I just need to get through the next hour. Oh, I've got to get these kids to bed. They're going to be up late. They're going to be tired tomorrow. It's going to be impossible to get them up in the morning. And then I'm going to have to get to work. And I'm going to end up being late because my kids were so hard to get up. And I'm going to start my day off bad. And then I'm going to, I've got a presentation to do, which I haven't even started. Like, it's just crazy. They don't have the capacity to cool their jets and plan for the long term. It's all fight or flight. You know, it's all, I'm being chased by a lion uh, I don't really think yoga is the thing now because stretching will be helpful because I don't want to be less limber when I'm 65, right? But um, so so uh, you've got a whole generation uh, of lots and lots of kids. And this is not even to mention divorce, which is a whole other uh, whining works, complaining works, because there's all this additional guilt as well as all the stress. Oh, my God, our income has dropped by 40%. Oh, my God, I only get to see my kids half the time. So there's this endless bribery of um, uh, guilty divorced parents and, and all that. And so whining, you basically got an entire generation of, of kids who are raised to push the whine button and push the complain button. And uh, then Bernie Sanders comes along. <laughs> I hear your complaints. I feel your pain. I'm going to give you all this free stuff. And if you look at the comments... Uh, on my Bernie Sanders video, I think it's currently rounding 130 or 140, 140,000. So the Bernie Sanders video, if you look down at the comments and, you know, obviously you want to put on a hazmat suit and uh, not expose yourself to too much of this. It's like staring at the sun or cleavage in a public place. Not your own, of course, that's fun. But um, you, you scroll down through these comments and you see this incredible array of emotional manipulation. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm hurt. I'm irritated. You're a jerk. You're a this. You're, it's just basically, it's like a bunch of three-year-olds who think they've got their parents wrapped around their finger having a tantrum so that they can get something they want. 
forgiveness from student loans or free health care or free college or whatever. I'm going to have a tantrum and I'm going to get what I want. Like once you understand how much people are still like children in the world, it's very clear. The great thing is, is you don't have to take any of it personally. It's got, <laughs> you're just a bald son of a bitch who just hates the poor and doesn't want to, can't get laid and doesn't want to have mommy issues. and <laughs> right? So many okay. problems, misconceptions, mistakes, and outright distortions. Malanu is intellectual sloppiness crystallized in a human being. Thumbs down. <laughs> and that, that was just a comment that Mike left. I mean, comments from the actual Bernie Sanders supporters are even worse. <laughs> Give give us some more, Mike. Let, <laughs> let's let's feel the full on tan of uh, irradiating t- toddler tantrums. <gasps> Talking out your ass! Exclamation point. You must be on Trump's dick, right? Question mark. I'm point. voting for Sanders, like it or not, bald aid looking motherfucker. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Keep going. This is, this is great. <laughs> let's see. Oh. oh, let me find some good ones. Uh... Yes, let's thank wealth inequality because now people are so rich they can bribe whatever politician they want. It's simple fact. You never seem to learn. Everything comes down with a downside. Molyneux? Everything. Oh, yeah. First of all, I love the people who only use the last name. You'll see this You'll see this uh, when, when you see outlets that are sympathetic to Jeb Bush. In other words, traditional conservative outlets. They always refer to him <clears throat> as Mr. Bush, whereas Trump just gets Trump. You know, as soon as you take the subroquet, as soon as you take the Mr. off, you know, Molyneux does this. And Jeb Bush has this reasonable request, but Trump supporters are angry. You don't say Mr. Trump, right? Because that's a sign of semi-respect or whatever, right? So you'll see, you'll see that kind of stuff, the last name stuff. Uh, and also, you know, I'm such a jerk. It's never worth learning how to spell my name. I mean, <laughs> dear God. Steph, I know I it's need not to correct the easiest you, thing. Jeb Bush doesn't have a last name. That's very clear if you watch any of his uh, promotional materials and that type of stuff. Jeb! It's a Jeb! It's got an exclamation point. You know why? Because because then you might, if you see his last name, you might remember that he's the brother of that homicidal maniac who caused millions of people to die in Iraq. So, you know, if uh, if my last name was Hitler, I'd be Steph if I'm running in Germany. (laughs) Um, This bit uh, adheres to the trickle-down theory. But if that three had any truth, it was not readily apparent. Dot dot dot. The trickle. Oh wait, the wait. Exit can I, can I just say how CEO. much I enjoy these? Can I just say how much I enjoy these snarkument? The now the snarkument is the argument by just sarcasm and snark. Oh yeah, yeah. Like corporations are going to take so much care of us because all they they love us so much and they're just out looking for our best interests. So let's just put all of our trust in corporations. It's like you are a complete empty-headed, mouth-drooling tool shed. A vacuous nothingness. <laughs> it's like snark is not an argument. That's why I call it in it's a snarkument. It's like if I just repeat what you said, but roll my eyes like I'm some 13-year-old girl who just thinks you're like mother, oh, come on. How could you say that? I mean, this is not inappropriate. This is totally fine. My dress is supposed to be a headband that's pulled down over my hips. That's exactly how all the girls wear it. I can't believe you're being such a square. I mean, that's literally, it's like eye-rolling 13-year-old snarkiments. It's like, repeat what you said, but make it snarky. It's like, I know you've watched The Daily Show, but come on, a little. That's why you see, you, if you, I, I had a look at some of these comments, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument. You know, you, you just, this, but it literally is, I want a candy bar. Give me a candy bar. <laughs> I mean, they might as well be like throwing themselves on the back, kicking their hands and feet and holding their breath till they turn blue. 
and meanwhile looking to see if it's working. I mean, it, it, it's so, and, and to give into that is so destructive. To feed those tantrums is so destructive. No, I know exactly where you're coming from because I'm from a house of divorce where I have the the our selected parent, the mom who just acquiesces all the time and doesn't care. And then my baby brother, who's my half brother, is a perfect example of that. Like both of my uh, little brother and I, my second brother, had our dad involved in our life, and we're just good examples of exactly the same things you talk about. And then with his dad not in the picture, he has all those problems. He uh, has that uh, whining, that temper tantrum, and then my mom just gives in because she just flat out doesn't want to deal with it. So I just know from anecdotal evidence that you're speaking 100% truth. It's it's strange that we need to even say this basic and simple fact. You cannot become a man by manipulating women. I don't know why this needs to be said, <laughs> but it really does. And even if you're Bernie Sanders, who's pretending to be a woman, you can't be a man by manipulating women. And anyone who gives in to your temper tantrums is pretty much your worst enemy. Uh, they are enabling you being a parasite of aggression rather than a reasonable producer of value. That's the thing, producing, because you have a lot of people, especially around here, where I hear everybody saying, oh, we don't need to pay for our student loans. Oh, wait, wait are you kidding me? You're going to college to first of all we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place if we actually had entry level and middle class uh supporting jobs with the but thank god for the 39 percent uh corporate tax rate which chased away all of our factory level jobs and everything like that so that's why you have to go to college in the first place so why are you saying the government's going to help us when the government created the problem in the first place well, yeah, of course. But I mean, that would require a self-knowledge of personal history to disentangle the government from the imagos of the parents. I mean, so many people, they're simply reenacting their relationship with their parents with the government. Mm -hmm. And the leftists, I think, are heavily female and not all women, but, you know, this, no. this as you say, the are selected women. The, the, the leftists are just generally people who grew up in a heavily female society where um, emotional needs have to get met no matter what, you know, which mm -hmm. is like everybody gets a prize. Everybody gets a car. Everybody gets a ribbon. Whereas the male <laughs> society is, you suck. Good job. You suck. Good job. Good job. You suck. <laughs> you lose. You win. Good job. Well, that sucks. That's terrible, right? <laughs> Whereas, you know, there's this old Peanuts cartoon where um, Linus uh, is sort of the conscience of the strip, but Linus, who's a little kid in the strip, says, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know exactly what parents are going to say. Uh, or grandparents in particular. Grandmothers, I can get down to a T. And uh, so he says to Lucy and Charlie Brown, I think it is, you know, go draw two pictures, take it to grandma. I know exactly what she's going to say. She's going to say, I think they're both very nice. And they draw two pictures, they take them to the grandma, and uh, the grandma says, I, I think, think they're both very nice, <laughs> right? And that's, that's a nice lady-ish thing to say, right? Nice lady-like thing to say, smooth the waters, make sure, you know, you're not off hunting, quality doesn't really matter, you just got to be nice to everyone. Whereas, you know, the guys are like, oh my God, I didn't even know what that is. What are you drawing? That's terrible, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, how often, do, how often do women say, aren't you a little too old for this now? <laughs> you know, whereas guys will say, you're too old for this. Come on. I mean, move on. Get, get something new, right? Uh, and um, so, yeah, I mean, you just grow up in this hyper-feminized culture and you end up with these feminized men 
who basically have the same relationship to Bernie Sanders does that a toddler has to a weak-willed mom. And, um, you know, he's just praying, playing into all of that. And people say, well, why now? It's like, well, because this is the generation of men raised almost exclusively by women. And so they're going to come along and they're going to have their temper tantrums because temper tantrums worked with mom and temper tantrums will work with the leftists and with Bernie Sanders, whereas people on the right are, no, it's... Um, we're case selected. Failure is very important in life. Failure is super important in life. If you avoid failure, you're avoiding life. And they've trained themselves to deal with failure by failing at a lot of things. And once you fail at a lot of things, you rip the, you rip the scab off and you realize failure is really nothing to be scared of. Uh, that is one of those things wherein the fear is, is the only thing that there is to be scared of. I mean, I've failed at a whole bunch of different things. I could go into the list now, but we want to finish the show before next Tuesday. <laughs> and so failure, okay, so what, right? Oh, people aren't going to like this video. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we'll survive, you know. Well, you, you know, th that, that's a terrible perspective to have. It's like, well, that's my perspective. So if you, you don't like it, go the fuck elsewhere. I don't care. The internet's a big place. New people coming in all the time. It's fine with me. You're not allowed to have that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. well, you don't care about people being educated. It's like, you know, I'm giving 30 years of philosophy away pretty much for free. What are you doing to help the poor asshole? <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I just uh, if, if you're terrified of failure, then you're going to constantly try and manipulate people to give you stuff for free so that you don't actually have to deal with failure. But it's like those people, you should have had a trigger warning. It's like you should be over the age of eight. <laughs> You know, I mean, you, you should have grown up a little bit and be able to handle words and images. Well, you should have told me it was going to be upsetting. It's like, no, you are an adult. You will see things in this life that are upsetting. Deal with it. It's not everybody else's job to skate around your delicate little sensibilities, your little princess of passion, and make sure that she never sees anything that's upsetting to her. You're in a goddess of infinite pearl-clutching faintingness, your Tennessee Williams character of inner fragility. I mean, no, it's not everybody else's job to make sure you never get upset. We're off doing our thing. I'm doing my thing. You're doing your thing. And if you, what you does upsets me, I deal with it like an adult who's got some pubic hair. And, and you can scream and say you need a hug room and pictures of puppies and, and, and trigger warnings and stuff. But that's really bad. You've got to train people's amygdala to handle in a mature way the stimulus of fight versus flight. And every time you give in to people and, and if they're negatively stimulated by what you're doing, oh, I'll change what I'm doing. It's all you're telling them is that they can't handle it and, and they can become a tyrant and you have to change because they're upset. And that's like a weird chick caricature of base femininity. I bet you Phyllis Schlafly didn't do that and neither did Ayn Rand and neither did Margaret Thatcher and neither did other heroic women throughout history, Golda Meir or whoever, right? They didn't say, oh my goodness, somebody said the word socialism. I must lie down. Get me a mint julep and some head rubs. Some smelling salts would help too. Oh, give me the puppy. Right? Like <laughs> they go in uh, guns blazing. I've never, I've never seen Ann Coulter ask for a hug because somebody said the word undocumented. Um, so uh, this is just where, where things are. And you're in this liberal college, which means you're in heavily concentrated snort and you'll die if you're K-selected, R-selected uh, crystals of nothingness. And, uh, you know, good luck with that. I mean, that can be a real, a real challenge to get by on, but that's where you are, right? It's a trudge for sure, but I mean, I'm going to get through it because I, I didn't come. I mean, I agree with you 100% about college isn't the only viable option, especially for young people. But the main reason I came here is to uh, for athletics, and that was my 
main drive to go to college outside of that i probably would have figured out what i wanted to do and start my own business or you know actually get involved in the workforce but i know you guys need to cut off soon uh, we well, hang on what what do you play uh, football. I came here to walk on because, like you said, I faced a lot of failure, especially in high school. I didn't necessarily get looked at by the right people, but um, I don't care because I'm the master of my own destiny. And come hell or high water, I'm going to get what I want. And that's just. And you've got the football drawl, right? You, know, like you just speak kind of <laughs> slowly because I'm go. bigger and I don't need to speed up for anyone. Um, <laughs> and no, and of course, in football, you know, there's a lot of failure, right? I mean, Every single How often do you get to advance? How often do you get a touchdown? How often do you get your ass crunched by some guy coming at you sideways? Wait, exactly. that sounds like something quite different. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but enough about Bernie Sanders. <laughs> uh, but um, so there's a lot of failure, right? I mean, a lot of plays don't work and, and you just, you get used to it and you realize that success is like dessert. You, you know, you get it once in a while and it's great, but you can't eat it every meal or you're going to get sick. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, I'm I'm glad you get that. And I wish that other people understood that. And it's just something that drives you. But I honestly don't give a shit about how much I fail. It's just the amount of times I succeed and keep on going and get more. It's like an addiction. Like these people are addicted to socialism. I'm addicted to competition and winning. Beautiful. Well, make sure you breed, man. We need more case. So <laughs> use use those athletic powers and, and powers of seduction, which, by the way, are almost working on me. But use those <laughs> athletic powers of seduction to make sure you get a very high-quality case-selected women and you pump out a bunch of wolf pups because exactly. we've got some rabbits to uh, evict. Hey, I'll bring you into my cabinet when I run for president. How does that sound? <laughs> I'll hide in the cabinet and make fun of the press. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate the call. And thanks, of course, to everyone. The show's for... not ending, Steph. Look, I'm sorry. The show's not ending. It, it, it really no, is. I'm, no, it, it's I'm not ending. Juice. I've collected an assortment of Bernie Sanders comments, and I've okay, it so in a way. Yeah. Are, are you going to read them as whiny as humanly possible? <laughs> I don't know if I can manage. I'll blow up my voice. But uh, making college unaffordable is actually a good thing? Seriously? Must be nice to generalize these issues and compare today to 1970. Why don't you compare it to life when Fred and Wilma were around? I like your point about the poor wanting candy and taxing the rich as a waste of time. Those job creators have done so much for us. Steven, you're really starting to sound like a bought and paid for stooge. Wait, wait, can I can I just throw one two syllables in? Sure. Lol, what? <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> This guy in the clip has no clue who he is, but what is he spreading here is pure populism. He explains that the grass isn't so green anymore because a dog is pissing on it once in a while. What? <laughs> and that that's a lot of that. Is I'm just like, I think you think you made a point, but anybody with half a brain is like, what? Pissing is also spelled wrong. Um, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Could you be less transparent and shallow? than just trying to label Bernie a, quote, socialist, hash out the more superficial cliches about socialists, and dismiss him because of a label, question mark, you're an apologist for the 1%, or are there a lapdog? And that doesn't qualify you to call yourself a, quote, philosopher. You are an unwitting propagandist, sounding off like a think tank funded by the plurocratic ah, class. And class only has one ass. Um, <laughs> Classy. <laughs> it, is, it is not like, quote, I want your dad and mom to spend on candies and toys, end quote. It's more like, 
I want dad and mom to pay for my college, my education. Don't try to trivialize it, you trickster, comma. Did they misspell trivialize? Trivialize? <laughs> it's trivialize? <laughs> <laughs> Something in that the number the number of people the number of sorry to interrupt Mike but the number of people who demand the right to go to college while not being able to spell simple words there's a spell check on your computer goddamn oh my god <laughs> you don't even know it's misspelled and you think you can spell uh. and so of course you want college to be free because you'll never get a return on investment but guess what neither will society. Go on, sorry. Philosopher, question mark. In other words, totally out of touch with reality. The real world <laughs> is not a model in economics 101. There is no laissez-faire economy. The market is not free, but controlled by a few large corporations in most industries. Hardly better than public monopoly. Any comments without taking this into account are meaningless. Democratic socialism is the antidote for crony capitalism in this country right now. Boom. Exclamation mark. <laughs> Therefore proof. Therefore evidence and reason. And yeah, corporations have armies, so that's why they're in charge. The spelling of that one was pretty good, though. That's, uh, you know, two points, two points. Eight points. Yeah, fair enough. Your eye analogy doesn't really hold up. It would be as if there was a blind person and a person hoarding eyes. The person hoarding eyes is pretty obviously a bad guy. Okay. <laughs> this guy is a paid shill for the 1%. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shill. Oh, boy. If I had a dollar. Coke and shill. Apparently, these are I, I get paid by shills and Cokes. No, I'm a, I'm a shill for the Coke brothers. Guys, call me. Seriously. I'm I'm like, I'll, I'll sell. Like, seriously, guys, I'm, I'm not holding out because I'm above your money. It's just nobody is, you know, I'm, I'm like a hooker. Nobody's slowing down. It's not because I have so much pride. It's just because nobody's rolling down that window and asking me to put my squishy man tits in their car. <laughs> Uh, this is too good. But uh, once again, I just like to say that I really appreciate the show and I'll keep on watching and hopefully I'll be able to come back on and uh, speak again because it was a lot of fun and it's actually enjoyable to fire off synapses with people with functioning brain cells. That's always nice. You're welcome anytime, brother. And uh, comments? Are you, are you trying to cut me off from? Oh, you know, let's Sanders let's do a few more Bernie Sanders <laughs> comments. But no, you're welcome back anytime. Keep <laughs> us posted right, about yeah. how life is. Uh, life is among the whiny rabbits. All right, I'll I'll be your college correspondent, so to speak. <laughs> That's right. This guy is a greedy moron and will be the first to take help from the government when has a need. K N E E D, and lies out his ass. Period. Almost everything he says can be called bull shit. Less than five minutes into this video, I was so sick of the hyperbole and the use of logical fallacies, I had to stop watching. It's really a shame that the fallacies are no longer taught in American schools, because anyone who has ever, even a passing familiarity, familiarity is spelled wrong, <laughs> with then can see through your statements faster than most political candidates will accept 15 million donations from corporations and billionaires. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so this is basically the <laughs> argument that if I say the word fallacy enough, then, then that's a fallacy, uh, and I just have to keep repeating the word. You know, like how business people stand in a room and scream the word profit over and over and over again until gold magically falls out of their nose. It's beautiful. <laughs> or how you know guys go out into a field uh, in the middle of nowhere and scream sex over and over and over again until angels give them some. So. Uh, <laughs> I like them with feathers and hailers. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so who else are you going to vote for? Question mark. Trump? Question mark. Carson? Question mark. Cruz? Question mark. Please. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, please. 
please. So, and the number of people who say logical fallacies while themselves demonstrating logical fallacies is just astounding. I guess it's, you know, it's like your doctor, I'm really sick, doc, I need some help. And they just scream the word health at you until you get better. Wow, that's easier than going to medical school. I should have done that. (laughs) Apples to oranges. You can't compare the two accurately. This is laced with straw men at every turn. What's what place was wrong? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Mixed metaphors? I don't know. <laughs> One last comment, and I'm going to stop. I am only at the 13-minute mark, and the amount of pure nonsense and lies that you are spouting is just disgusting. You never had to be rich to own a computer, comma. Never, all caps, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Stefan is just another ethically devoid lying bureaucrat, dependent on the people being so stupid and ignorant that they cannot refute his lies. What a douchebag. And douchebag is spelled with two H's. Okay. Wait, was that bureaucrat? Puro is how they're spelling it, not plurocrat. Purocrat. Purocrat. That's a new one. Is that like really refined orgasm? Purocrat. (laughs) It's it's an orgasm. You can snort off a hooker's ass. It's purocrat. And I think there's a cat involved. <laughs> or some kind of pussy. We're talking like that. We'll get the Koch brothers to slow down when they're driving by stuff. Then <laughs> you can stick your saggy tits in the window. Seriously. Guys, <laughs> call me. You know, I, I am totally for sale. And this doesn't just apply to the Koch brothers. I mean, like, if you're out there and you've got a huge amount of money and you want to buy rants... I mean, seriously, call me, guys. I am, I'm just sitting here staring at the phone, counting my change, trying to make rent. If you want to call, I'm just, I'm, there's lots of things that I'll do. Like, there's there's lots of things that I'll do. And a lot of them were illegal in Texas until quite recently. Uh, that's just a hint. But there's a lot of things you can do. I'm not very flexible, but I'm quite muscular. So you can, you know, bring your yak oil uh, whatever it is that you need to do, bring some ropes that I can hang from. You know, you can spin me around like Too Tom Cruise stuff. in Mission Impossible. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> They're slowly rolling up the window and spinning away. <laughs> Ow, they drove over my foot and now they backed into me. <laughs> that was supposed to be my You job. always scare away the 1%. Damn it, Steph, why do you do this? <laughs> Oh, hell, you got a lot more and more stupid and fucked up over the year. Year. Why is there a T in years? Okay. You are so full of shit, exclamation point. Please stop making people more stupid, you paid propagandist, exclamation point. You again showed how little you actually know, period. Full of logical fallacies, polemics, and unrelated nonsense. Who is paying you, question mark? Vote Bernie 2016. Stay out of U.S. politics. Move to Mars if you don't like our system. So hang on. So so people are accusing me of having um, a financial stake in my particular philosophical perspective because I'm going to get paid. But these guys are basically deep-throating Bernie Sanders for free college. But I'm the one who's got some kind of financial stake that is, is skewing my judgment. I love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. This entire video is filled with false dichotomies and capitalist debunk ideologies, as well as an anti-socialist propaganda, as well as a anti-socialist propaganda. Just one. 
Just one. Oh, you also have to remember that the word debunked is a lot easier than debunking people. <laughs> like just the so-and-so, oh, that's, de- that's been debunked. This is a debunked so-and-so. This position that's has been debunked, debunked so, so many, many times. times. Oh my so God. many times do we have to oh, yawn, go through it again. and oh. right. Firstly, the government has plenty of money because taxes and tariffs, period. And Americans are the hardest workers on the planet, dot, dot, dot. We don't need Brits calling us lazy. And thirdly, okay. and thirdly I, I want things for free, but don't you dare call me lazy. I think that's the fucking definition, <laughs> you tuning fork of idiocy. And, and thirdly, Bernie wants to end the oligarchy in America. You can't dent his character with the splendic, splendid. I have no idea what the fuck that word's supposed to be. No, that's I just they like my penis. The splendid <laughs> is splendid. a truly fantastic uh, penis. Oh, okay. Well, let's move on to the next comment then. <laughs> okay, last one. Make oh, it a good one. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a good one. Uh, hearing you vomit words without facts hurts my brain now. How is one trillion spent? Can I wait? Hang on, hang on. <laughs> I assume it's not an overwhelming pain then. <laughs> I assume that it's a, like a little nagging, tiny, tiny little pain. You know, like like three weeks ago, you stepped on a pin. Uh, so I'm sorry that I hurt your brain. I am consoled by the fact that you really can't feel much pain at all. I think we could just end it right there. If you like us reading Bernie Sanders' comments, please let us know. <laughs> let's just make that the whole show from here on in. <laughs> that's, that's all we're going to do is just read YouTube comments for funsies. Stefan Molyneux reads his hate mail. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone. Again, uh, as always, a, a real pleasure to, to chat with you. I appreciate everyone who likes, shares, subscribes. Uh, please, please sign up. Uh, I know the economy is tough. And, uh, of course, you know, take care of yourself before uh, me uh, and Stoyan and Mike and uh, their greedy requirements for food and shelter. Where's the sacrifice? I must know. But, um, yeah, Freedom Main Radio. FreedomMainRadio.com slash donate. Slow down. Roll down that window. And, uh, you know, we might give you a bit of a surprise. Never. <laughs> yeah, listen, if you donate and you type in the words squishy man tits uh, into the uh, browser – um, the NSA will know. That's the only thing I can promise you. <laughs> I was going to um, say, what am I going to be sending people? Don't, don't say this. Right. Someone will donate. I I'm hollow, donate. You might notice I'm a little hollow-chested this show um, because I have no nipples left. I've sent them to you. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to sign up. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's a tough economy out there in Canada and the UK and the US. Uh, so some people have had to cancel because, you know, they just – having a really tough time financially. So we really, really need people to step up uh, now more than ever as we continue to grow and bring reason and evidence and hopefully some fun into people's lives. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. We really, really need your help. And uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the show.